All right. So, I start off every podcast with just one question. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in Dallas. Really? Yeah. You're guest number three that was born in Dallas, and I wasn't expecting that, to be honest, when I started doing the podcast. Yeah. I thought I'd get people that were, like, traveling on the road to come in, you know, Austin comedians and other places like that, but... I ended up getting a bunch of people from Dallas. Yeah, no, born and raised in Dallas, and uh, I was on the road a lot the last six years. But uh, yeah, born and born and bred here. What part of Dallas did you grow up in? Uh, it's weird. I, I grew up in East Dallas, um, born in, like in the Oak Cliff area. Lived in East Dallas, and I guess you know, as far as journey goes, that was a big part of like. So I lived in East Dallas uh, with my mother, and then my mom, my mom. Uh, went to prison, so I had to go live with my grandmother uh, in Plano, which was like a very uh, uh, jarring situation for me as a young kid. So when was this? Uh, what year? Or how uh, old were you? I was like seven or eight, something like that. So mom goes to prison? Yeah, yeah. Uh, dad? No dad. Okay. Uh, do you mind if I ask what mom went to prison for? Uh, the third, I, I don't know what the first two were, but the third felony was uh, uh, aggravated assault with a motorized vehicle. Whoa. Um, yeah. So she was, she was gone for a while. Uh, and I love my mom now. Like, my mom's in recovery or is recovered as well now. Uh, but growing up, it was like, I mean, that's where I think a lot of my stand-up comes from. It's like, you know, I kind of grew up in a very unique situation. Well, I mean, well, the first time I heard you, so full disclosure, I got to see you live at the Hyenas Club, I'm going to say two or three weeks ago, um, which doesn't matter when this gets released. You know, yeah. Dates don't actually matter. <laughs> but you struck me as a very funny comedian, and the reason you were really funny to me is the way you were self-deprecating and telling the story of your, kind of like your journey of how you became a comedian and all, cause you touched upon your mom and where you grew up and like a little bit of your situation. You didn't say Dallas, but you did talk about like, you know, just growing up and it was really funny. It was cause you had a lot of dark stuff in there. People that don't really expect it. Cause when you talk about addiction and mom or dad going to prison, that's the dark already. Yeah. But then you're just kind of like, I'm going to take it a couple of more steps down a darker road and see if you guys want to follow me. And it was perfect to see you on a Thursday night because Thursday night people are like comedy people. You're not just randomly walking in on a Saturday after you were just in the area. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. It's so, and I, I think I can probably remember a little bit more about the set now that you're talking about, cause you're definitely seeing somebody who's in flux where it's like, I've been doing this, uh, long enough. We're now like on a Thursday. Like if I'm doing a dark set, a, that just means I'm feeling comfortable. And I'm also, I'm at a place now where, um, uh, I'm doing it so I know I can go up there and just kill if I want to just kill. Okay. Uh, and then I think as comics, as artists, you have to you have to take chances. So I have this. And when you talk about journey and talk about how I was presenting the story with my mother, uh, I grew up writing. Um, I come from a very, um, like a story background. Okay. So to me, even whenever I'm moving through different little jokes, to me, there's always an arc. The whole story I'm trying to lay out where it all kind of flows and connects together. I got it. If that makes sense. A lot of comics are more like joke, 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 and there's not as much uh, things don't connect or weave together as much. Right. But just the way my brain works, I kind of, it's really the only way I know how to communicate. Well, that was one of the, uh, the interesting things about a, a lineup like a three for 25. You usually get three very different types of comedy styles. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember, um, I remember the host, Arun, the Indian guy, he was really funny. And he had very some funny. stuff that was very observational, stuff about his personal life. It was just, it was fun to watch. 
And then there was another act. I don't remember the gentleman's name. He was funny, but what kind of threw me off is that he kept reiterating the reason he was funny, which was, I'm 45 years old, I'm 45 years old. I don't remember if it was exactly 45, but he kept mentioning his age, and his self-deprecation really didn't go past, I'm a 45-year-old single guy. Yeah. Whereas yours was very multi-layered, and it had depth to it, and I could see the storyteller in you. I could see the person that is not after the one-liner. You've got a formulation of this beautiful picture that you want us all to travel down this path with you. And I'm more t uh, I go towards comedians like that more, where I can go down like a story where it's not supposed to be all funny. I'm supposed to feel uncomfortable at times. And then from there, where we go to these dark places where we find the funny. And that's what I really appreciated about the, your comedy style. So you mentioned that writing. You've been writing since you were a kid. Yeah. Is there like a, a family lineage of writers? Is there someone that like no. kind of inspired you to write? What, what kind of, because, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, it's a creative outlet, but where does it come from? I was, as a young boy, I was left alone a lot. So uh, the one thing that was in the house that my mother did have a lot of was books. Oh, that's great. Um, so I was an avid reader uh, for most of my life. I'm a little ashamed. The last two years, I probably haven't read the way I used to. But it's uh, growing up ever since I was a little kid, like I was always a very heavy reader. And then I got into music. Um, I don't know what it is about me. I've always felt the need to create um be creative in some kind of form. So when I was a young kid, uh, I, I got into playing music. I got a guitar when I was a very young kid, okay. uh, like second, first grade, something like that. And uh, I would just sit in my room and I would just write songs all day. And then I grew up and I was in bands from like when I was in sixth grade until the end of high school. Uh, and I would write all the songs. So the the writing thing has just always been my whole life. I've always been doing it. And then, of course, the band breaks up, you know, because everybody goes to college, gets real jobs, has families. And I was just right. writing. I was started writing short stories. Oh, cool. OK. And honestly, like that's really how it started for me. I always loved stand up. I would go to stand up shows all the time. Um, but I was 30. I started very late for comedy. I was 30 and I was writing a short story uh, about an artist. And uh, in it, I had him telling jokes because everybody told me if you come from like a literary background, everybody says comedy is the hardest thing to write. So I let that get in my head, I think, when I was younger. Okay. I just thought, like, oh, I'd love to do stand-up, but everybody says writing comedy is very hard. But I started writing jokes for this character in the story. And then I, I was like, you know, I might go to, like, do an open mic and see if these some of these jokes work. Because they're really more about me than they are about the character. Um, so I got that in my head, and then I just went to an open mic. And uh, the first time, it went really well. I mean, there was, like, three people in the room. But I got a couple laughs, so it felt like a huge victory. Okay. Uh, the next night, I went up. And I only got to do three minutes and I was terrible. And that's when I was like, oh, I love this. I understand as an actor, it's extremely important, your stage presence. You're, you're literally, you know, part of it is your nonverbal communication that's giving off the entire story. How much of that translates to a comedian, a stand-up comedian? I think, I think for, I mean, everybody's a little different. That's the weird, I mean, comedy is, it's like actors or it's like music. Everybody has their own thing. Um, but I think confidence like unspoken confidence changes everything. Whenever you're a new comedian, when you're on stage, you tell all of your jokes in a way where you're going like, you're basically saying with your body language and how you're talking, you're basically saying to the audience, I hope you think this is funny. Is this okay? Do you guys like this? Is everybody okay? Are you guys all right? And then you get to a place where you start leaning in 
because your confidence is building in your abilities of what you're doing. And then even it, it can be a joke that isn't even as, as good as some of your other jokes, but you say it in a way with your eyes and your body where into the audience where you're basically going, Hey, if you don't laugh at this, what are you stupid? Right. And it creates, it forces a dynamic. Um, There's a certain confidence or a bravado of a seasoned comedian versus, um, you ever watch Kill Tony? Yeah, of course. So like on Kill Tony, you can almost tell when the person gets on the stage, just how they're grabbing the mic, just how they're handling the mic stand. All of these small nonverbal cues that give away if the person is working or trying to be a working comedian versus somebody that literally just went up the stage the first time. Yeah, and my story, Kill Tony is definitely a part of my story. Because, is it really? Yeah, because I was probably like six or seven months into comedy. So this is like eight years ago. Okay, so he's still at the store in L.A. Uh, yes, but they were starting to travel. But you have to, at the time, I had no idea what uh, Kill Tony even was, right? And my other comedian friends, it was around Christmas time, they hit me up and they go like, hey, we're all going to the club tonight to see Kill Tony. And this is Dallas or? Yeah, it okay. was at Dallas. And this is before Tony had the band and everything. So this is like the beginning stages of Kill Tony. Very, like I was on episode like 237 or something like that. That's probably why I never saw it because I got into Kill Tony, I want to say two years ago. Okay, yeah. Um, I honestly didn't know about him until I saw him on somebody else's podcast. And he was just like really edgy and dark and like, you know, no nonsense kind of a comedian. And I was like, I wonder what this guy does. And just you Google him, he's everywhere. Yeah. And uh, so I go, I go to the show that night. And back then, they did a thing where whoever had the best minute, whoever they picked, got to open up for them that night. Oh, okay. Because they would do the podcast. And then after the podcast, everybody would leave. And then they'd have the audience come in for the actual comedy show. So who are the people during the podcast? It wasn't in front of a live audience at that time? No, it was. It was. Okay. But they would do just the podcast. And then after the podcast was done recording, they would actually do like a stand-up comedy show. I got it. So like the 730 showcase or whatever it is doesn't begin until the podcast ends and a whole new group of audience members come in. Yeah, some of it was or, the same people, but yeah. And then you got to open if you were, I guess, the if, winner or something? Yeah, whoever, had the, whoever, whoever, whoever they decided killed. had the best minute got to open for them back then. Interesting. Yeah. So I was, didn't even know what the podcast was. I just show up and I watch everybody go up and uh, they were like, all right, I think we're done. And they, they, they picked who they thought had one. And then they go, oh, we're going to pull one more name out of the bucket. We'll do one more. And okay. they, they pulled my name out. So I go on stage and I was very lucky because I'd gotten to see everybody else do what they did. Right. So I kind of got to figure, oh, do it like this, do it like that. Um, and I went up and just bam, 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 bam. Uh, but I was just an open micer at the time, but I won the minute and then they let me open for them. And then the club just started letting me be a paid regular where I got to start being an MC at the club after that. So I feel like your story is a little different from other comedians I've spoken with about their first time of being terrified or going terribly and just bombing. It seems like you kind of got a couple of laps the first time and then six months into it, you kill on kill Tony, you get to open the show. It, was there, um, when was the point where you were like, this is what I want to do? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I ever had a chance in the early times. I mean, I, I, I wanted to, and this is a cool thing about the journey that I've been on. And whenever I've, I've gone through rough patches, I try to remember that like, Hey, I, I already did it. Like I just went to an open mic thinking, Hey, some of these jokes might work. Uh huh. Um, so you're just working out at that point. Well, I was just, I just wanted to try it. I just wanted to try oh, it. Like in the beginning, in the beginning, okay. I just wanted to try it. And you know, um, 
because I was still writing short stories. I was still playing music. So I really just wanted to try it. And then so sometimes I really reflect on the idea that um, eight years later, like I'm, I just got done headlining a club for the weekend. Where were you at? Uh, TK's in Addison. Oh, cool. So I, I we did Thursday through Saturday. It's the second time they've let me headline. That's awesome. So I'm up there doing an hour on stage and people are paying tickets for it, you know, and it's. it's I mean, it's got to be exciting, right? It is exciting, but it's like everything happens in such. It's almost like watching like a time lapse photo. Like you would have to like really speed it up to actually see the flower bloom. You know what I mean? But right. it, but but most of the time you feel like you're just looking at something that's not really doing anything. Well, I think us as an audience, you know, people outside looking into the artistic craft, we always see when the person has made it. Yeah. We almost always are exposed to someone that we really like for the first time when they're big. Like you see him on Netflix or you see him on someone's podcast, you know, someone huge like flagrant andrew schultz or you're on kill tony and you actually kill something like that usually for us as the consumer i mean i put myself in a different category because i frequent clubs just because of this Mm -hmm. Uh, but like for the regular person they don't see how much pain and work went into actually getting there so I, i like that analogy of you have to really slow down the time lapse to actually see frame by frame and then you'll catch all the painful moments of getting there yeah it definitely is what it is because i was i was I, I, I hesitate sometimes. I think I've taught myself to not say lucky um, because it's, it's, you know, one little lucky thing. Does, there's, so much, there's so much that happens in this industry. But it's like I was lucky that I got on with Kill Tony. And Antonio was very kind to me in the beginning. And he would, he would you know, when he'd come to town, you know, he'd hit me up and I'd go open for him wherever he was at. And um, so I got things very quick. But then after three years of getting stuff very quick, I started working the road. Um, which is like, you know, just going to like, there's like a batch of clubs in Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, Arkansas, um, Colorado, playing these clubs or these casinos in New Mexico, and then playing a club up in Arizona. And I was just being like an MC at the time. So Mm -hmm. you're driving, you're driving to Kansas to do six shows and they give you $150 for the six shows for the six shows. Which it's the other thing that most people don't know about being a stand-up comedian. Even though I could go see you at Hyenas, uh-huh. or I can go see you at Addison, or somewhere else here, doesn't really mean you're making a lot of money. No, not at all. I mean, it's it's been eight years, and I think I just probably got the biggest check I've gotten since I've started doing it. And it's you know, it's a nice check, but it's in comparison to how much time you've put in to get to that check, it's not at all worth it if you're looking at things financially. And I don't think most. So this is why artists are a very special breed of person because they're not looking. I mean, I, I understand feeding yourself and getting to wealth and stuff. Everybody has that in the back of their mind always, especially mm-hmm. the feeding yourself part. Yeah. But when it comes down to success, I think artists inherently understand that until someone says their art has value, it has no value. And that's an unfortunate part, but it's society. And I feel like, you know, if you became a doctor, and you really suck at surgery. You could still be a doctor doing other things, just seeing regular patients, but you know you suck at surgery, let's say. But as a comedian, you don't want to, or as any artist, I don't think you want to admit that you suck and you keep piling through it and you know just keep trying and trying. And like six years ago, if you had given up and been like, screw it, then you would have been like, yeah, I, I didn't make it as a comedian. But now you keep pushing through it. You get to this point where you're like, oh, I can see the payoff. And I know it seems unfair for eight years later to get your first big check, but there's also the flip side of that. You have the rest of your life to continue to get big, big checks. 
Yeah, and I. You know and, what I mean? It'll I, make up for that lost time, especially since ninety-five percent of the people in the world will never live the life you live. Yeah, and that's the thing too is getting to do something that not only that you love, but you feel like uh, somehow you know all these like from being how I grew up from playing the music. Because like now I even when I do comedy, I, I really in my mind, I, I think of it as as I've gotten so loose on stage. I think of it as music. OK. You know what I mean? Like a, so there's like a rhythm and a flow to it. There's right? a rhythm and a flow. But also I have so much material now that when I go on stage, I know how I'm going to start typically. Mm-hmm. And I kind of know where I'm going to end. But after that, I just kind of I think of it as like jazz or blues. Okay. You know, I'm kind of, I want the audience. I want something to happen. I want to be able to talk to you. Then that reminds me of this bit. And then we're, because if you come to see me or on a different night, I might not mention my mother. I might not mention my grandmother. You know what I mean? And a lot of the dark stuff because I'm not in that mood. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember you, I think you were having a little bit of fun with a couple of married couples that were there too, sitting in the front and stuff. And it, it brought levity to the situation. It kind of made all the dark stuff funny, but it was also like, we're not really going to go down this path the entire way. I'll give you guys like a break here and there where you can laugh at something stupid as you've been married 20 years. They've been married 40 years. Ha ha. Whatever it was. I don't remember at this point. Yeah. And I think exactly. of that I apologize, as but. throwing the ball back in the air. So I can, right. I have a better radar now in my head of like, okay, I, we've gotten a little dark. Let me do this. Let me do this. Let me do this. Throw some quick jokes. Now we got the ball back in the air. Every, I, can, I feel like everybody's having a good time and then I can kind of drag them into what I actually want to talk about for a while. And I feel like... Um, Part of that is time on stage, right? Like mm-hmm. over a course, it's like riding a bicycle. You know, not all of us become BMX riders, but some do. Where it's like the more time you spend on the stage, the more comfortable you get. Your timing probably gets better. Is that all things that you've noticed really as as you've progressed happen? And then you're just kind of like, oh, I, damn, I'm doing this a lot better than I used to. Kind of like without even knowing you're doing it, second nature kind of things. Oh, for sure. And it's it's funny because, I mean, every once in a while, like on my laptop, or something, I'll stumble across like some clip from like four years ago. And, my, and I'm sure at the time I thought, oh, I'm doing great. This is such a good joke or great material. And now I uh, my, my, my toes want to curl up in my shoes when I see how I was handling things or doing stuff so you get cringed by some of your earlier work oh of course yeah i think i think every artist should i mean you should you should hate what you were doing last year if you're really growing and getting better i mean i think if you're not cringing at your old work that means you're continuing the same Mm -hmm. which means you're maybe not growing as a person or an artist i i think the ones that are the goats in our mind of comedy are the ones that continue to push the boundary and continue to um, see their old work, say you suck and you should get better and continue to want to get better. And, you know, I've heard interviews with like the big guys where they always say like, if you stop caring about making the next hour better than the previous one, you're going to fade away. And it's, it's weird too, because whenever you say the like, I, I, I think it's, it's weird that it's such an important, I mean, not everybody probably would is that way, but I have a healthy, uh, dislike for myself and I think it helps me sometimes because even even if I like my my wife my, my the mother of my child my ex-wife she she used to have the best line about comedy where she would say she would go I love stand-up comedy but I hate the drive home right because even if I killed like I there was something this wasn't right I didn't do that right I forgot to do this this isn't there yet that's not there yet I'm, I'm so pissed off that this went that way and it's like after a great set but I'm still upset about it. Which is, again, I will hearken it back to any artist that wants to be great. Well, 
always be harder on themselves than the toughest critic in the world, the worst comment on Instagram or whatever it is. I think those are the people that genuinely succeed. Yeah. And it's, and it's, <laughs> but sometimes we all, I, I, I'm aware that sometimes we all rationalize or like the way I talk to myself. Sometimes I was running on a trail today and I, and I got to this hill and if you could just hear the terrible things, I was yelling at myself out loud to get myself up this hill. So you're doing the Goggins thing. Um, no, no, the, the David Goggins thing drives me crazy when I see on TikTok. I think he's a little too, a little too aggressive about everything. Not everybody can do a pull up, you know, and, and that's okay. I think, um, part of his aggression uh -huh. is very justified in the sense that maybe not for you, but for a lot of people, it does get them off their ass to do something. Yeah. It does get them. Cause like they get that daily hit of like, this guy never quits. Yeah. I can at least do once a week, you yeah. know, that kind of motivation. And I get there's a brand behind David Goggins and the amount of work he's put into building that brand and building a better version of himself. But like, whenever you hear this guy talk, like he on a constant basis is just like, you're a bitch, you could do better. And to himself on a nonstop basis. And you're like, I commend that. Well, I, you know, and I, I think I see where I get it from now or where, how I see it. Cause it's like, that's how I talk to myself, but I right. would never talk to somebody else that way. Like how I, how I speak I to it. me and how I treat other people are two entirely different things. Which makes sense, right? You don't want to, you don't want the world to treat you the way you treat you sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think we say that enough, but you always want the world to treat you better than you treat yourself. Of course. Well, I think some people, I, I, I don't, I don't you, it, it's weird. You never know how people's minds work, but like, I just know that in my head, I can be very brutal to myself about, uh, how things are going. Like even in the comedy business now, a lot of it is like taking your sets, filming them, cutting them up into clips and putting them on the internet. Yeah. And that's a big deal right now. It is. It's what you, and I, 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 it's like some, you like to see the feed, like you like to see them do well, but like whenever I sit down and I have to watch my sets like all the way through to pick the like clips. hearing me do the same joke, even though it's, even if it's killing or I just, I, or I stand a certain way or I, I flub a line, like it's painful to sit there and, and find the parts that you want to cut up because you got to sit there and watch yourself do this thing. And the whole time I can't help, but just be a critic the whole time and just be like okay that you do this better do this better do this better you're doing this you cuss too much you did that too much you're relying on this little trick a little too much you need to figure something else out and i'll make little notes uh to myself as i'm watching all these films but it's it's being constantly hard on yourself so part of your process mm -hmm. i'm curious it starts with writing mm -hmm. we alluded to that and then how long after you've actually written a joke and performed it, do you feel like it's got enough uh, weight to it that you would be added to uh, your, your list of, you know, jokes that I might want to use in a different club? And what, you know, like, how long does that take? And then the other follow up is, what percentage of jokes actually make it there? Um, it's, it's, it's always changed. It's been changing with me a lot. Like I used to be such whenever I was new, I was so pencil to paper, or keyboard. And I would write everything out and just sit there and chisel at it to okay. try to get it exactly how I wanted it. And then I would go on stage and I would say it exactly how I wrote it down. And if I didn't, I'd be upset that I didn't say it exactly how I wrote it down. And now the last few years, I've very much changed to like, I kind of just jot down little notes okay. to myself. And then um, I'll go on stage like on a Thursday night. Typically mm -hmm. is when I'll try stuff out and work stuff out. So on Thursday night, I'll go up and I have these little, little lines or 
ideas that I've jotted down. So I'll go on stage and I'll try to kill for five minutes. Okay. Like I just want to go up and just establish really quick. Like, Hey, I'm really funny. You guys are enjoying this. We're all having a good time. And then as soon as I feel like I've got the room on my side, I will just start. I'll just, and I'll glance at those notes right before I go up on stage and I'll just start trying to work some of that stuff. Okay. And that just say sense. it. And now I, it's now that I want everything to be, Whenever I was new, I wanted to say it exactly how I wrote it down. It was very precious to me. Like, I thought that that was important. Like, if I, if I fuck up one of these words. I used, to, I used to tell myself in other comics, to me, and I didn't hear myself when I said it, but I was like, if you, if you keep saying a joke the wrong way, like if you keep flubbing a sentence, or you, you say the second part instead of the third part, uh -huh. you're like you're messing up the flow of it. Right. What it means is you're not saying it right. Okay. I, I'm not going to flub a line when I'm talking to you. I'm not going to accidentally say the second part before the first part. Because there is none. Yeah. We're because, just Because we're just talking. Yeah. So that's whenever I finally heard myself what I was saying. Like, I still like to write things down. Like, if I have a story, I will write it out. But only after I've said it on stage several times. Because I want it to be, uh, I want it to come across as honest and in the moment. Okay. And I don't want to, I realize now if I write everything down, it creates train track in my head. What's train track? So, so like it has to follow. A, yeah. A now, specific now, track. now I've established, like I built the frame of the house and now it's hard to go like, actually let's put this over here. But Got if it. I just, but if I just say it to an audience and I let myself live in it, then I'm more likely to find the structure I would like for it to have. Okay. That makes sense. And then once it's killing with an audience, then I will go sit down and I'll write it down. Cause then whenever I write it down on a laptop, I can then, I can see the framing of it and I can see the sentences mm -hmm. and I can see where probably there's stuff that doesn't need to be there. Okay. So there's like these different visual forms. Like I, I have to have it audio and then form it, get it as good as I think I can get it and then write it down and then look at it. And then I can break it down again. So I guess when you get to that stage of writing it down is when the word economy comes into play where you get rid of the fat and just kind of like, how little do I need to actually make this punch harder than it's ever done before? Exactly. Interesting. But, but then also, so not getting to that part first is, and this becomes from as you get more confident as a comedian. Whenever I was newer, for me to have that fat on it and to just be talking without a punchline, would, I would have seen that as a big negative. Okay. That would have bothered me. Like, hey, you, you, you got too much fat here. You're talking without saying a joke for too long. Okay. Now... Now I'm much more inclined to, I, I'm okay with you being uncomfortable because I know where this is going. Okay. Because I mean, that's part of, I think the genius of a good comedian is how far of a gap do I leave between a laugh without losing my audience? Because mm -hmm. you know, if it goes long enough, like all of us are just going to tune out. We're going to be course. like, dude, what the hell? Why is he talking about his grandma for 45 minutes? I haven't nothing funny has happened yet. If you haven't got your hook, if you haven't established that you're funny and that you're the bus driver and you know where this is going. So you, you build trust with them. Right. Right. So, but, and that trust only goes so far. Okay. But at the same time that you learn your, your, your ears, this is a big part of, I think too, being a, a good comedian um, or a, a seasoned one is your ears start to change. Right. So whenever I'm on stage to me, there's a difference between you guys listening mm -hmm. and silence listening is good if they're all kind of leaning in and you can tell that they want to hear what you have to say next that's better like but that's not silence silence is not good you can feel silence in a comedy club yeah. i mean i've been to enough that i've been sitting in and i my, my rule is i always sit in the back where the comedians sit if i can 
uh, just because I don't want to. I have. I always have a pen and pad with me, uh-huh. and I don't want some comedian to be up there going, like, "Who's this douchebag with a pen and pad?" Like in, in the middle of my set. The reason for that is like I start writing notes. I need to remember names. I need to know what was the funny, why I liked you, if I liked you, you know, and all that stuff. So I sit in all the way in the back, and what I realize is that you can hear a pin drop when you lose an audience. And on the other end of it, you can almost hear a breathing rhythm of everyone together going like, what's next? What's next? Come on, man. Get to it. I can't wait for you to kill me again. Because, and again, this goes back to a good comedian, which I consider you a good comedian. Um, You know how to start your audience off right with a couple of quick ones that really get the room kind of like get it, get into it. We know he's funny. We want to follow him down this path because we know he's funny. And then you can do the longer story where... You've got that gap and you did it like it was beautiful the way you did it that evening. And I remember it was like before you started the the long, funny story, it was messing with the audience a little bit, you know, just cutting the tension and everybody was laughing and we're like, all right, let's see what goes. Let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. because now we're all buddies. Yeah. Now, now everybody's in the boat. We've all agreed that we're going to go on this journey together. And it, it's a beautiful thing in a comedy club where we as the audience and you as a comedian, we have a social contract together. Mm-hmm. Granted, nowadays that contract is being broken by the audience more than it should be. And I hate that shit, to be honest with you. I don't like hecklers. I don't like people that want to yell out of an audience because they think their opinion matters or whatever. It doesn't. I'm sorry. Your opinion doesn't matter for shit. Oh, for sure. I agree with you 100%. And I, 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 it bums me out whenever I see it happen to comics that I know are very beautiful minds. But they have a way of doing comedy where they don't want to mess with the audience. They, right. don't, they don't want to get into those altercations. Whereas with me, uh, especially I've, I've, I get, I've had, especially I, I'll, <sighs> stage time feels less precious to me now because I, I get okay. to be up there a lot. So, and, and I'm filming it. So now it's like, if, if something crazy happens, if somebody wants to get wild, to me, I'm like, cool, let's do this. You know what I mean? Because in your mind, you know, you're going to win. Like no matter what they're doing, okay, you want to yell something at me? Like I've, you're walking into a trap. You're not heckling me. You're walking into a trap. And what most morons don't understand when they're doing that is, dude, the guy has a camera set up back there. He's going to clip this. You're going to look like an idiot. He's going to get the likes and follows. And then more people are going to go to his show, especially if you take a heckler and you kill the room by reversing the heckle back on them. Some comedians are just gods at that stuff. Yeah, dude. Like yeah. they'll just take it and kill you right there on the spot it's funny to me whenever i was a big fan of comedy when i would just go to comedy shows and you would watch stand-up comics do that crowd work stuff it looked like magic and then once you you become well versed in it and you just have confidence you realize it's so easy it's so easy to win in those moments so based on that how long after you actually started having stage time did you start interacting with the audience or what kind of like made it happen um, what, what made it happen was people just like getting heckled, you know, people wanting to yell stuff at you. Okay. And it's hard because I was a hyenas comic. I still am. But I, at hyenas, there's rules. And this things the audience doesn't know is that like, uh, it's like when you saw Laroon that night, right? The yeah. opener. Yeah. He's not allowed to interact with the audience. He's not allowed to cuss and he's uh, not allowed to do dirty material. The openers at the club are not allowed to do those things. So is he the opener or was he one of the hosts? I thought he was well, the host. He was the host. That's what I mean. So the hosts at Highness are not allowed to do those three things. Which is, now that you, I never actually put any thought into it, but after being to Hyenas at least a half a dozen times, if not more, I, you're right. Yeah. Uh, Cheyenne, he's one of the hosts. He doesn't mm-hmm. do anything dirty. Arun doesn't do anything dirty. 
there was another host I rem- don't remember the person, but yeah, they're all clean. You're right. Yeah, well, yeah. clean to a point. I clean mean, you to know a what point. I mean? Yeah, like, of course. You're like, and especially whenever like Arun and Cheyenne. I mean, Cheyenne's uh, they're both great comedians. I love dear Cheyenne. friends. They're Arun both Arun is great, and so I they're allowed to, to interview him, but I want to. They're allowed to push the limits a little bit because when I was at the end of being a host so long years and years ago, I would cuss a little bit. I would push it a little bit because I right. knew I was good. And I knew I was about to get to that next level. Um, so you were almost trying to show the club like, hey, yeah, don't get on to me that I cuss. Make me a feature. So when did you host and where did you host? Uh, I started hosting at Hyenas. Okay. So the heckling thing, it's like uh, there would be times I remember being a host or somebody would yell something at you and you would you would want to tear into them, but you couldn't because you had these rules on you okay. about things. And so you can't interact with the audience at all. I mean, if somebody yells something at you, you can, you can, you know, you, like I had to learn that early on too. I remember one night I was in Plano and this lady kept yelling something at me and I just kept ignoring it. And then like, I try to tell MCs now too. It's like, yeah, you can't do crowd work. You can't just stop down and be like, Hey, what do you guys do for a living? But if somebody's yelling at something at you, handle it, you know, don't just act like it's not happening because you're trying to follow the rules. Yeah. I mean, cause I feel like, a person like that, if they're starting when the host begins, they're mm-hmm. going to do it the entire damn night. That's like an hour and a half, possibly, of some lady or man intoxicated just screaming, hey, and bullshit, you know? And you're like, okay, dude, stop. They enough. only get worse as the show goes. Yeah, because they're going to keep drinking. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, but the hyenas, a lot of people don't know this too. At most clubs, the MCs, uh, those are the rules from a lot of clubs. Okay. Not every club, but most clubs. That's and interesting. Hyenas was so good for us because they ins- they made you be clean for those 15 minutes. So then whenever I started getting road work and I would show up to like, you know, a loony bin in Arkansas. You could do clean comedy. I could do a clean MC set and they would come to you and be like, Jesus Christ. And you knew like Hyenas back whenever they were very, they're very, there's a lot of rules about how you open up the show, how you bring up the next person, you think the wait staff, and then you want to end the show on a clap. Okay. All of these things that most people wouldn't think about. Even even hosts that work the club, when I'm watching the show sometimes, I'm like, you're not doing the stuff. Um, but whenever you, I would go to work the road, these clubs would be like, oh, my God, your best case scenario. And it's not even that you were just such an amazing comedian. It's the fact that you were so well prepared for what right. they needed you to be doing. Right. Because now when I'm on the road, sometimes, you know, headlining or featuring, like, I will see the host and I'll just think, oh, my God, if this guy, somebody should have taught this guy how to run a show. I'm curious, when you go to these, um, like you said, loony bin places that are clean only, like I can only think of maybe one or two clean comedians oh, no, that no, are huge. They're not clean only, just as the opener. If you're the, if you're the MC. But you have, have you clean. done a club, like let's say a place in Arkansas or somewhere that is like you have to be clean? Um, well, not as the host, but just, you know, even if you're headlining, they're like, you have to do an hour clean. The only club uh, that does that, uh, that I know, that I, I work at all the time, is uh, Backdoor Comedy Club in Richardson. Okay, I've never been to the back door. I would highly recommend it, man. It's so it's, it's every good. it's every Friday, Saturday. Okay, uh, it's a very small room. It sits like sixty people. So awesome. I'll be, I'll be there tomorrow night. So, um, so what it is is it's called a showcase room, right? And the showcase room, what that means is like they put up like 10, 12 comics oh, for the wow. show. But everybody does. Some of them do three minutes. Some of them do five minutes. And then the closer will do like or like seven minutes, and the closer will do like twelve or ten. What's the name of the spot again in Richardson? Uh, Backdoor Comedy Club. Backdoor Comedy Club. But I just want I'm, to. I'm one of those people. If I don't say something three times, and I won't remember, <laughs> it's on Backdoor Comedy Club. But uh, that'll be imprinted. Linda Stogner runs it, and uh, she's uh, amazing, super talented. And uh, but to to work that room, you have to be clean. And I think it is. Uh, it makes you better as a comedian. It really does. 
like when else, I mean, sorry to cut you off, but I finally feel like it's so much harder to do clean comedy. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, saying fuck or talking about your dick or doing what any of these other things, a lot of them are easy laughs. Right. And that, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean dirty comedy is easy. You know what I mean? But I think even your favorite you know, Joey Diaz could go up in that room and kill for five minutes without doing some dirty stuff. Because the difference between, I think, Joey Diaz and most comedians is Joey Diaz is not the regular kind of comedian. His life story is just so funny. And the way he's animated and creative about it. and Like, you know, I, I know a lot of it is cussing because usually you hear him on the stage or at a buddy's podcast or his own podcast. But, I mean, I feel like if you took out the motherfucker and the cocksucker from his it would still be stupid funny. Like it yeah. would still kill. You're right. It would kill anywhere. So it's, it just teaches you um, how to be a better comedian. So I think a lot of people, if you go to that show, I think if you set through one of those backdoor comedy shows, you're not going to walk away being like, Oh, that was so clean. It was just, it's just comedy. And is it true as a, cl- a clean co- comedian, like the college scenes and other private events like that become much more accessible? Mm-hmm. Is that still true nowadays that like clean comedy is kind of what they want on college campuses and, uh, you know, private uh, hosted events and things like, like that? I've been doing a lot of corporate events the last corporate, year. Corporate, thank you. That's the word. So I was when, it, yeah, when you go do a corporate event, they have a crazy amount of rules that they put on you about this or that. And then I, I, I've learned now, I've been doing corporates long enough, just long enough that you kind of learn. It's like a first date. <laughs> Where it's okay. like you show up and you got to do all these things very prim and proper. And then if the date goes well, by the end of it, you're like, hey, you mind if I do something dirty? And they're like, yeah, we like you. Ah, um, interesting. So it's kind of, uh, I, I've kind of learned that with the corporates. Like, because it's a room full of adults. It's just the boss that's nervous that you're going to do something crazy. So you have to have like a good, you know, it, just because they, they let me do something dirty doesn't mean I'm going to go crazy. I got it. You know what I mean? But you can push it a little bit and treat everybody like they're adults. Yeah, um, I think the the bigger problem is it's not like people in a corporation are just, you know, uptights and don't know how to have a good time. But I do understand that, like, the culture of today, you have to be careful. And it, it was probably translated the same way going all the way back to God knows when is like, as a corporation, we need to be careful because, you know, there's somebody that's going to be a Karen and just be unhappy about this and start an HR complaint. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, for sure. For sure. And I've had men like, I've had some, I did one for Costco recently. Oh, cool. And I had a guy like try to fight me and like, not like actually get up and fight me, but like threaten me from the audience because of something I said to him. And I was like, Jesus Christ, dude, like, I know you're drunk, but like enjoy work on Monday. Cause you're going to be so embarrassed. And was it anything that like really bad or no, something? No, it wasn't anything bad. He, it, he, right? he did something very rude. I felt to my opener. Like he did like a kind of like a cartoonish laugh at one of his jokes uh. and, and that it comics, we all kind of protect each other. Like I can be in the back of the room being like, this dude's bombing. But if somebody in the audience yells at you, we're like, what? Don't talk to him like that. <laughs> you know, like yeah, we're all very sense. protective of each other. So I felt like I personally felt like this dude did something shitty to the opener. Uh, so I had it in my head. I'm going to get this guy one way or another. And I did. And then he really lost his cool, which I understand. I do it too. But, uh, the corporate thing is they're terrible. They pay well, but people don't understand that comedy requires an environment like dark room, right. bunch of people around each other that don't know each other, low ceilings. These things all matter. Um, and when you're at a corporate event, people are sitting next to people they work with. So sometimes you'll tell a joke and even though they think it's funny, they don't want that person to see them laughing at that joke. Right. And all the lights are on. It's like being in here. 
trying to do stand-up comedy. It is not the right environment for and, it. And, and you're very right. Every single art form has its very specific showcase. Yeah. If it's an art, it should be in an art gallery or a museum. If it's acting, it should be on a Broadway stage or on, you know, nine millimeter musicians, all of this stuff. And comedy is no different. And there's a there's probably a really good reason behind the low ceilings. I get the dark room thing. It just takes away everybody's inhibitions and you can laugh at something that you don't care if anybody thinks that you find that funny. Because like people, you know... Um, I don't know, uh, Louis C.K., like, he'll make some really dark, funny jokes, right? Mm -hmm. I love that stuff. I find it really funny, and I'll laugh my ass off. But I could also understand how there might be someone that also finds it funny, but wouldn't want the world to know they find it funny. Exactly. You know what I mean? And it's funny to me, the dark humor thing, I as a comic, like you said, I was doing some dark stuff that night. And it's funny you say that because I get onto myself sometimes when I was watching that set, probably on film. I remember, like, when comics do this as a cop-out. And I see it all the time. Like, hey, do you guys mind if I tell you guys some dark stuff? And I was yelling at myself the other day in my head. I was like, you, you bitch. Like, quit saying, do you guys mind if I do some dark stuff? And just do the shit that you want to do. Quit quit letting them out. Because basically, whenever you're doing that, you there's never been an audience that goes, no, we do not want your dark stuff. They're always uh, going to say yes. Right. They're always going to say yes. So it, it is. And it's it doesn't matter. But it's like for someone like me, who's always wants to be hard on myself. I was like, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a uh, easy tactic to say, hey, do you guys mind if I do some dark stuff? Of course they say yes, and then you go into it. But it's not like there wasn't really another option. You're very correct about that. Yeah. And I think, I didn't notice it with your set, but I have noticed it with other comedians that kind of give you this preliminary ask mm -hmm. where you're sitting there going like, why the hell did you ask? Yeah. What, what do you need my permission for? I pay to come see you make me laugh. And it's, we're not really asking. We're, we're trying to give ourselves permission. We want to feel okay with what we're about to do. Right. But I mean, I don't think you need that, man. Your stuff is dark, but it's good. It's very well put together. The economy of words is there. Like, I, I, not that I have a, any say in your comedy routine, but I'm like, yeah, drop that shit. You but, don't need it but, at all. But it also matters. It matters to us. Like, it, it's funny because that's like, I've had, I've had, uh, this is probably the third or fourth time I've had someone from a show ask me to do like a podcast or something like this. Oh, cool. And it's always very interesting to me because we don't know how we come off to people. The things that people say to me after shows, it, it, I'm never like offended by it. But what I seem to be to them is always very interesting to me. Huh. Because a lot of times it's not how I see myself or it's not how I, how I think it comes off. And it's funny what we find, what comics will find offensive. Like I've had so many people come up to me after shows and be like, man, I really, I love your stage performance, like how you deliver. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm a writer, you bitch. Like I fucking write jokes. What do you mean? Like, but it's like, we're just so insecure that way. I mean, I'm just mentally going back of my mental video of you that night. Your stage presence is awesome. You move around, you kind of interact with everybody that's there. You, you make all of us feel like we're part of the show, but that's not what made you funny, man. What well, made you funny is the thought that you put into the words that you delivered on stage. And what people don't understand is like, you can have a really funny joke, but if you can't time it and deliver it properly based on the audience you're with, it's not going to work. And that makes, that's, I say this all the time, uh, but to me, comedy, it's like, it's the same as singing on key. Right. I can't sing on key. I can't either. But I have a cadence uh, for jokes where a lot of it is just it's it's psychology where it's basically if you say a story or if you say a line where you go but up up but and here's where you laugh and here's where you laugh and here's where you laugh the audience learns 
even if that joke, or it might not be the funniest joke or that line, but you've worked them up and now you go, and here's where you laugh and here's where you laugh and they will. Right. And I see some comics that are new where they've written something that's very well thought out and it's very funny and it's good, but they will say that story and then they'll get to the end and the audience is kind of looking at them. They're like, no, that was funny, but, and. Right. Keep going. And he's or... like, no, that's, that was the whole thing. Which may mean that you don't have that big punchline at the end that you're really thinking and a I think little a, bit of rewording might change it. I think a lot of it's cadence. Okay. I think a lot of it is how you deliver it. Interesting. So if you would have taken that story and just told it a different way, exact same words. Okay. Well, you didn't put the emphasisms on the, the highs right. and the lows were not where they were supposed where to they be. Were supposed I guess. to be, and you didn't give them that. I remember one time I was in Oklahoma City and I was telling this story uh, that I still do sometimes or a lot, and. uh at the time, I, I I hadn't really figured out how to end it the way I wanted to, and I I went through a phase, and I still do it, where I will sit down on stage. Okay. Um, and I remember that night in, in Oklahoma City, I told this that same story, and when I got to the end of the story, I stood up and I moved the stool, and it got an applause break, and I realized I was like, oh shit, I've been telling that story for three months, and I just I I, I wasn't letting them know, and that's the end. Uh huh. And then whenever I just stood up and moved the stool, they all understood. Oh, that's the end of the story, and it got an applause break. Same exact story. Same which, as that story. So it's how you're communicating with your body. Which, again, I think it goes straight back to you being the type of artist that continues to be uh, hard on yourself and continues to look for ways to perfect what you're doing. And that's beautiful. I mean, you yourself, you just literally told me a story of like how you had an epiphany moment because you were actively looking for it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people may have not, like, they may have thought it was... Oh, probably because I got rid of the stool. They thought it was cool or something and never thought about it again. But you're like, wait a second. Was that really that good that they needed to applaud? Because sometimes we do as an audience. Like I can tell you that as an audience member, like something is so damn funny that we can't give you a standing O in the middle of your set, but we really want to give you something more than just laughing. And oh, I yeah. Think the, the clap is there. That's it. And we feel it too. We feel it. And it gives you energy. It really does. Like Because it's like the more, the, the harder they're laughing and the more claps you're getting, it it, it it makes you feel more free. So you're like, oh, you guys are enjoying this this much? Then I'm going to just lean in and just yeah. give you guys everything I have. Yeah. And it's hard whenever, but it's also a big trick in comedy where, um, you know, everybody talks about bombing. Okay. Um, and bombing is scary when you're new. Has it happened to you? Of course. Everybody bombs. Okay. Nobody doesn't bomb. But you do get, you do get more and more bulletproof. Because, like, when you become a feature act... Like whenever you're the host or the MC, you know, you're only doing 10 or 15 minutes. And okay. there, were, there was times when I was six months in, I wasn't ready. I wasn't good enough. And I'm five minutes in and it's not going well. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of just survive for another five minutes, you know, and then just get through it and go, all right, thank you. And you bring up the next guy. But whenever you're the feature or you're the headliner, you can't be 10 minutes in and it's not going well and just mentally check out and coast. Right. You've got to find a way to reset. and So you got to pivot in the middle of or in the beginning of the set or a fourth of the way into it. You have to be like, this isn't what I thought was going to make them laugh. Let's try this. Yeah. And then you get them back. And that takes a lot of material. Right. So it's like I, I always compare it to I remember talking to a room having this conversation. It's like I forget sometimes like whenever I was a host, like I would do a joke. And because the audience didn't like that joke, I knew they weren't going to like the next two. But I had to tell those because I didn't have more. So it's like just driving into a wall and you can't hit the brake. 
you know, but whenever you, whenever you have a lot of material, you're like, okay, well now I'm going to, I'm going to exit here. I'm going to exit here. This might've been a 10 minute chunk of material. You guys didn't like the first minute. It's gone. We're just going to move on to something else. Um, so, so it's gauging your audience and having that, uh, I guess, big mental notebook that says, let's just skip to page 45 and start here because this wasn't doing it for us. But it's, it's one of those things that's crazy. Like, I don't know how to explain it to somebody. Like, I, I wouldn't know how to teach somebody cadence. I wouldn't know how to teach somebody how to do those mental pivots. I wouldn't know how to teach them, hey, here's where, okay, that happened. Here's where you're going to want to go to the audience. And here's where you're going to want to spin that into this and then recall what that audience member said and pull it into this bit. I don't know how to, I, would, I, I don't think I would know how to show somebody how to do that. I actually think you already did teach everybody that without even knowing you did because you, just like every other comedian, says the exact same thing take time on the stage mm -hmm. and you will eventually fall into your rhythm and find your voice. And you're, and that's the thing is like, you cannot be taught cadence, you, especially in comedy where you need to figure out that all of that happens during being on the stage. I think you, and you said it, you have to put in the time mm -hmm. that plus what you said about having a large uh, book of material well, that only happens if you're spending time on the stage and doing open mics and going over and over. And like, like you said, you have an idea and you may jot down like two words, you know, you know shitting dog, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then that turns into this really funny thing that you work out on stage. That's that, that is it that you taught everybody who is interested to know is there is no shortcut to this shit. You mm -mm. have to do it. Mm -mm. Some people are way better at it at the beginning. Like I was, okay, but you still have to go through it. I think you were better at it because you already came with a person that learned how to play guitar and there was a lot of structure that goes into playing a musical instrument and writing and because even if you weren't a comedian, you were doing something in the artistic field and your mind was already kind of pre-programming itself. And I was used to being on stage. Like I was yes. used to being in front of other people. So there was a certain um, intuitiveness to what I was doing up there um, that kind of came natural. And I had because of how I grew up and my journey to stand, I think I reflect on this a lot, like um, how I grew up. Joe, I want to touch a little bit more on how you grew up, uh, if you're okay with that. Yeah, of course. It never bothers me. Because, you know, we, we talked about mom's in recovery. You have a good relationship with her now. and But we didn't talk about, like, how your youth was. Because I feel like every comedian, their childhood kind of set them up to be a comedian without them even knowing it. Yeah. Um, so what was it like growing up? I mean, just... Kind of like mom in and out of prison. Yeah, mom in and out of prison um, a lot. And then um, I would live with her ex-boyfriend, uh, uh, this guy named Nikki, who I still talk to. He's really the hero of the story. He was like an ex-Hells Angel. Really? And uh, yeah, like we, we, they were just characters, man. Like he had a, he, like all of his buddies that would hang out the house, just like uh, these guys named like Kozak, Sickles, and Spencer. And a lot of this stuff I still haven't written about because I love Nikki so much. But like he was, he had dyslexia, so he dropped out of high school in like ninth grade. Um, because back then you know, they didn't have the word for dyslexia. You just couldn't read. Right. Yeah. And you know? were just illiterate. Yeah. And I could read very well. So we were kind of like this weird buddy cop movie. You know what I mean? Like I was a seven year old with this big exhales angel biker, but like I could read the, 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 the mail that was coming in. 
It's like Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it was kind of like that. And, uh, and then my grandparents found out that I was like probably in not a situation a child should be in. Uh, mom's side or dad's side, grandparents? Uh, my mom's side. So is there any connection or touch with your dad or your dad's side of the family? Do you like no, I, I, know I, I, who he is or any of that stuff? Yeah, I know who he is. I haven't seen him since I was like eight. Uh, I know where he lives. He doesn't live far away from me. Um, like I was, when I was in like, when I was in like, uh, right after high school, I got a, this is when MySpace was still a thing. Okay. I got it. Yeah. I, we're in the same age bracket. I'm 37. You're 38. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we, we remember all the same shit yeah. growing up. So I, I got a message on MySpace, uh, and it, I, it was at a time, like I didn't really check MySpace. Okay. So like a friend calls me, uh, this girl Ryan in, she calls me and she goes, Hey, I got this message from somebody on MySpace saying that they're your sister. Holy shit. And that they're trying to get in touch with you. They're, and they had all these things like, is your mom's name Trina? Did you, were you born in Oak Cliff and all this stuff? And I was like, yeah, they're nailing it. Wow. And uh, so I, I messaged this, this girl back and she's from the dad's side of my family. Um, like I said, I have no relationship with my father, but he had two more children, it turns out. So the next day we all went to breakfast. The three of you? Yeah. Uh, boy or girl, the other one? Uh, they were boy and a girl. So they were siblings. Mm-hmm. Uh, same mom, same dad. Uh, different moms. Different moms. Yeah. So all three of you have different, uh, have the same dad, different moms. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's crazy. And our littlest brother, like that's the one that he actually like raised. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Who's so he was good to that good. one. Yeah. He was good. We to have that such one. a similar story, dude. It's oh, really? Not even funny. My parents got divorced when I was a year old. Uh, never had a relationship with him. And then when I was like in my late twenties, I reconnected with him briefly, and I found out I had, have sorry, not had have, three half brothers around the world. Yeah, and I'm the eldest of them, and then he was actually good to the youngest of the bunch. We ended up he ended up marrying the woman and started a family with her and raised his son until he died. Um, it was like three months after I got re- I got back in touch with him. They called me and like, yeah, he passed away from a heart attack. Oh, that's crazy. Um, and I was happy that I got that moment to reconnect with him, not because oh my daddy blah blah blah. No, I was like, I'm so happy you were never in my fucking life, dude yeah sorry bro but like you would have taught me none of the things that would have made me a man yeah uh you know because like i have my wife i have my kids they are everything to me and i would never ever imagine a a life without them i don't care what happens i would go to the ends of the earth for my children yeah um so i'm glad he was never around and i hope some way you can find solace in that statement for your personal life yeah i hope you have the same feeling at some point of like well i have a son now and it's and it's it's weird like you deal with all the trauma of not being like raised by you know your parents um and then like you kind of you kind of dealt with it and now i have a a 19 month old son and i look at him and it's like almost reliving that trauma a little bit because how I feel about him. Right. I can't, like now I can't even, again, once again, I cannot imagine not, not being taking care of this guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and it's almost like, it almost made me see it in a worse way again. And Uh, he's only 19 months. So I've got an eight year old, a seven year old and a two year old. Yeah. So I will tell you one thing that as a father that grew up without a father, you're going to experience their first, like it's your first. And it's going to be, just that much better than anyone can ever explain to you. Like the first time your son rides a bike, uh, you take him shooting, whatever it is, fishing, any of the stuff that you never got to do. Yeah. Dude, those things are going to be like magnified times a thousand, I promise you. Because there's a part of you that there's like that little five-year-old kid or that three-year-old kid that never got that, that is literally going to get that through your son. Yeah. And you will feel 
at least I did, uh, very angry in the beginning of like, how hard is it to do this, dude? It doesn't cost <laughs> anything just to be around. Just to be around, yeah. And then very up. quickly that turns into this type of love that you will have for your children that, again, I think is very different from a person that came from a mom, dad, family that was like, oh, this is normal. This is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Because you're yeah. like relearning all this stuff that you didn't have. And I was nervous at first too, like not really having that the standard uh, father figure right i was worried at first about like before he was born like oh man like i don't really have any i have nothing prepared for this like i have no real good examples of how to deal with a very young boy and what to do and then he came into the world and it was like oh like i hold him I'm like this is easy it clicks right yeah, it just yeah, clicks the easiest thing in the way like intuitive once again yeah. it's like oh i just love this thing more than myself that's that seems pretty easy like how somehow it was imprinted into human evolution how to take care of a newborn without ever have done anything with a newborn you're just like i know what to do well even now with my son whenever he says dad to me it's crazy because it's like i do reflect on sometimes the idea that like I, I that's not a word i used almost ever as a like most 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 normal people have said dad millions of times that word doesn't really mean any like you know what i mean like it's no, just a, exactly it's just a word mean. to them but like for me it just was it's not a word that i threw around very much as a young kid so for you, you had Nikki in your life. Yeah. In my life, I had my grandfather, my mom's dad. And he pretty much raised me as the father figure. Like, my mom's always been in my life. We, you know, my mom's my mom. But uh, we were always close with my grandparents. Like, we lived together for a long time. Uh, and I had him as my, like, male role model. So, like, I try to mimic as much of him in my everyday life because he was just a really good person. He still yeah. is. He, he is a good person. And I was like, I can try to be a dad like that. Um, I think a lot of people may take, if you don't have that good father figure, even if it's not your dad, and not having that will make you a better person in certain circumstances, but in other circumstances, it just makes you a piece of shit too. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I'm glad you're on the other side of it where you're like, I'm not going to continue down this, you know, spiral of my kid not having a good dad in his life and all that stuff. And you're like, no, we can break this cycle very quickly. It just takes one. Yeah. Because that's usually like there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, peer reviewed psychological articles and stuff that say like kids that come out of a mom and dad household do way better in life. Even if they're not together, as long as mom and dad exist in the child's life, those kids almost always end up being more successful than the ones that come from a single parent household. Yeah. No. And I re I repeated, I'm definitely a, 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 an example of like repeating a lot of the dumb shit that I saw as a kid. Like I was yeah. shown exactly like, Hey, don't do this. And then later in life, I want to go on to do those things. Oh yeah. I did so many stupid things, bro. Yeah. Like when I reflect on my teens and my early twenties, I'm like, I'm should have been dead a couple oh, of times. I'm, I'm, I'm 38. I just turned 38 and I'm two and a half years. When removed, was your birthday? Uh, February 4th. Sixth. Oh, really? There you go. Hell My yeah. Aquarius brother. You know what's crazy? You know what's crazy is even on stage at TK's, I was joking about this. Like, I was telling everybody, I was telling everybody on stage that I was 39. And uh, I got home that night, and the, the, the roommate that I live with was one of my oldest, oldest friends. I love him to death. And uh, I walked in. I was like, yeah, it's so weird. I'm 39. He goes, I'm 39. You're 38. And I was like, are you serious? It's <laughs> so, like, I, 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 I don't think I was ever 37. I don't think I ever told anybody. I, I lost a year and then got it back somewhere. Well, congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. You got 365 extra days out <laughs> yeah, of it, bro. Yes. Uh, but I swear to God, I, I thought for sure I was 39. But uh, so, yeah, I, I went to go live with my grandparents in right. Plano, which is traumatic because I came from like such a rough, crazy background. And then I got put in a Plano. And my grandparents both worked at Lovefield Airport. Okay. Um, 
So they were very, uh, they, they moved from East Dallas and that same neighborhood to Plano to take me because they were like, we're going to get you in a better school system. So they bought a house out there. And if I'm not mistaken, when I talked to Cheyenne about it, he said Plano had really good schools because that's where he went to school. Yeah. But it was traumatic for me because I was so far behind coming from East Dallas to like a blue ribbon school. Right. I was not at all prepared for like what, because there was a very competitive um, academic environment. And I was used to nobody giving a fuck about how you did just skating did. by, right? Yeah, just yeah. skating by. Um, so, and also there was a lot of things where it's like I was, I came from a very poor place. So then being in Plano, it's like I remember all the kids, like it was all about brand clothing. Like I used to make jokes, like if you live in a bad neighborhood, it's about colors. But like when you get to like somewhere like Plano, it's about brands. But That's it's a really good but, joke. But it still associates who you associate with. You can tell by how a kid's dressed who he hangs out with for the most part. Yeah, that's a really good joke, you know dude. I, mean? I love it. And I was saying it's like anybody can get jumped into a gang. It costs a lot of money to join a soccer club. Yeah, I know. And you feel it's just I got as- kids, bro. I know how <laughs> I know the pain of what it costs to kind of Karate, soccer, taekwondo, piano, all this other stuff that they want to do. And stuff that I never did. I don't know if you ever no. did any. Like, I never did. I did karate for like a year and that was it. No, no. There was, uh, I remember my grandparents let me play football for a long time. And then I was like, I wanted to play hockey. And they're like, you got to pick one. We are not, like, you're not doing two sports. It's too expensive. Especially hockey. I've heard hockey can be stupid expensive with like yeah. the amount of skates you need to buy, the gear, the the sticks being broken all the time. Like... And I know sticks are like 50 bucks, 60 bucks for the good ones, right? Uh, I, I never got to play. <laughs> <laughs> I only know as an adult because I, like, I was curious. I was like, I wonder how much it cost. Yeah, like, I oh, just... Oh, crap. Uh, and so I was, then I was living with them in Plano. But I found a group of friends and I brought music with me. I brought music with me from East Dallas to, to Plano. And I was very, very serendipitous that I... Like a couple kids that lived down the street. Like one was playing drums. Uh, and another one, like I was just starting to learn guitar. And this is in like sixth grade. So we all start forming a band. How'd you get into guitar, by the way? Um, the guy, Nikki, that I lived with. Okay. Um, he was uh, super, mu- just records everywhere, all over the little place that we lived in. He, he played drums. His buddies would come over. There's pictures of me. It's funny to me. There's pictures of me um, playing drums. And I'm just surrounded by all these old men who are playing their instruments. And uh, behind me, it's just like, I'm like, I'm like seven. Okay. Right. And be like, and I'm playing the blues with them playing drums and behind me is like a naked a picture of a naked woman on a motorcycle you know, like that's the kind of just like environment that so i grew like up early in. 90s yeah yeah but that's just that's just how i grew up so when i got to plano it was just it was it was so culture shock I culture bet, shock man. for me 100 percent um but i found these kids and i was kind of was teaching them music you know because i started off playing drums i played guitar and i was already writing songs and i'm showing them music you know classic rock stuff they'd never heard of and then we all just started playing music together and then by the time we were 15, we were playing bars in Lower Greenville. Like my grandmother would literally drop me off for gigs. Wow, cool. And I was playing guitar and singing in punk bands like uh, in Deep Ellum when I was 15. That's so interesting. Like I was listening to um, Joe Rogan's podcast a little while ago and he had Rick Rubin on. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to listen to that one too, by the way, because he's very fascinating to me. And I actually just took delivery of his book and I haven't had a chance to start it, but uh, the day I heard the podcast, I literally pre-ordered the book and I was like, it barely got delivered to me like a week ago or something. Um, but he was talking about it and he mentioned that nobody becomes an artist by chance. That like, if you look back, there's always someone in the in the close family circle or a friend or someone that had musical talent that exposes a person at a young age to it. And this is where you get like, 
the Jay Z's and the System of a Downs of the world and like famous bands that everybody knows, famous musicians that everybody knows. And he was talking about that. So that's why I was curious as to how you got into guitar. And it kind of like is almost validating what he said is you had someone like Nikki at a very young age exposing you to music. Yeah. And it kind of like lit a fire in you. And also it's weird to me too. I hear myself thinking it whenever you're saying artist a lot. Um, I never really, even though all these different things I've done, because uh, we were even getting paid to play in those venues uh, at 15. Um, I never have really called myself an artist. Most don't. Yeah, but I, I think to me it just sounds high fluent. It's uh, it, it sounds like something that I would not be a part of. Um, but I think to me, I've always I've always been doing art since I was a kid. But it wasn't art to me. It was survival. It was. I'm writing these songs and I'm playing my guitar because shit's real bad. You know what I mean? My mom's in prison. Uh, I'm living with this dude. And there's somebody with a hook for our hands in the kitchen. You know, like I'm I'm playing this guitar to make everything okay. Uh, I still do that to this day. Like I'm writing all these jokes about how I grew up because it makes it okay. Um, but the idea that uh, like, you know, it's never been, it's always been like in these punk clubs or it's been at these hyenas, right. you know what I mean? Or like I'm performing at this bar tomorrow night in Mingus, Texas. It's always, it's never in a museum where there's a frame and there's perfect lighting on it. It's always been um, kind of, uh, you know, um, <sighs> art that happens in a dark alley you know i get what you're saying and i get where you're coming from but my only pushback to that is i feel like all art for some reason comes from a dark place and comedy is no different mm -hmm. and howie mandel is very famous for saying that comedy comes from a dark place and through that darkness you try to find humor and the light and kind of like ease other people's situation and it is an art that i think is probably one of the oldest art forms if you go back to the court gestures of yesteryear they were the stand-up comedians of back then and it's just been going on for hundreds if not thousands of years of you have to have people in society that tell society what is bullshit what is and bullshit? that's what a comedian does and that's art it takes a specific type of talent to be able to make people realize the bullshit laugh about it and then effectively try to make a change mm -hmm. that's being artistic in my opinion and I do get a lot of, it took me a while to get there, but I get a lot of uh, joy at, at times from, you know, when I was on the road a lot, like when you're in Little Rock, Arkansas, or you're in, you're just surrounded by the way I look, you're surrounded by people who kind of disagree with you politically, just based on how you look. And then you get them all, if you get them worked into a frenzy enough, and then you get them to clap for something that if they would have had another second to think about it, they would have gone like, oh, actually, I don't agree with that. I don't like that. Right. But because you got them there, like they all, they're like, oh, that's hilarious. But really what you're poking fun at is their own ideals. And they're clapping about it. Um, well, I think the thing is, is like, we get so caught up for some reason in our political tribes. Mm -hmm. And I don't get it. I've never understood it. I kind of find myself like in the middle until they shift the middle around too much. I think most people are in there. Yeah, I'm more libertarian than anything else. It's just like, leave me the hell alone. Let me live my life. And you live your life. Just don't, you know, breathe it down my throat. And I think that is genius to get them to actually laugh at their own hypocrisy. Because well, that's what it is. If they thought about it for a second longer, they would be like, oh, shit, if I clap or if I laugh for this, I'm a hypocrite. Because it goes against what my morals should be or whatever, right? I remember performing at clubs whenever Trump was first elected and... I would have club owners come up to me and go like, hey, just try not to do anything political. 
because it's kind of like hot out there right now. Right. And I remember, and just what my personality is as a person, I ended up building this bit that I would close on for okay. years on the road. And and they so like I it just made me so mad that somebody was going to tell me like, hey, don't mention politics because you're in a room full of people that. Cause I'm like, I'm like, you don't know what my politics are. I mean, you're guessing based on how I look and you're right. <laughs> and you're right. Star tattoos give it away. Yeah. But I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to allow you to say that to me. So then I, at one point I'd built this closer and I rarely ever do it anymore. But the, the opening is like, Hey, just don't boo me. I know where I'm at. Uh, you know, I'm a Democrat and I, and I'm not even like a super political person anymore, but I would do this bit and I, and the bit, my wife at the time, mother of my child, um, I would say that she's a uh, Republican. So I, I would kind of use her as a foil because then I'm because then I would u- base use our relationship as an example for politics. Right. All we because, could have both sides together. Yeah, and I go, yeah, I was like, right. We don't let that get in the way of us loving each other. And I would go, you know, because I'm liberal and I would have these examples and I'd get them to laugh at it really hard. And I'm like, because she's Republican, she does this. And by the end of the three minute bit, it would always end on just a huge applause break. And then I felt good because then I could walk back by that club manager kind of not say anything but look him in the face like fuck you right exactly you told me not to talk about that i just fucking did and it killed which i haven't had much uh interaction with club managers are they usually funny people um in dallas yeah i mean no typically they all are i mean it's it's a um it's a weird business we're very lucky in dallas man dallas is so phenomenal because we have nine clubs right now um so seriously yeah are you including hyenas fort worth in that list or Uh no yeah Wow, we have nine clubs. Because yeah, we have two, I, I think it's eight or nine. Because we got we lost the hyenas during COVID, uh, so we've got two hyenas. We had a third one. There was a third so one in Plano. I moved to Texas July of 2022. Oh, okay, I lived in Southern California for 30, 30 mm. years of my life. So I, like all of everything was there until, you know, the pandy happened, and I have three boys. I don't want to raise them in that hellhole. Sorry, California, <laughs> your state sucks. But I think other than New York, I don't. I don't know if maybe in Chicago they have more clubs than we do. I think that's it. So I don't know the numbers on it, but I do want to say you're right. Because uh, yeah. the main comedy hotspots that I could think of right now or that have been forever is L.A., Chicago, New York, um, Austin recently in the last three or four but years Austin, has just become nuts. Austin has two clubs. What is it? Yeah, the Creek in the Cave and you've got the Vulcan Gas Company, right? Uh-huh. And then... Rogan's Club is going to open, open anytime yeah. now. Um, and then probably a couple of smaller spots because I hear it on Kill Tony people doing sets at smaller venues. These I little small venues, yeah. And Austin's doing great right now, but as far as like club work, Dallas is good. I think we're the best kept. I mean, Houston has one club. And they're, think about how much bigger they are than us. Well, what I was surprised by when I moved here is the quality of comedy that I found. Like, I'm not talking about the big names that, you know, are killing it on Netflix specials and stuff, but I'm talking about, like, local guys and gals that are just still trying to get there. Really, really funny people, man, that, like, nobody knows about yet, and I'm so happy that I got to discover them because I want to see them a year or two from now when they do blow up. And there's certain ones that are they're bound to blow up. Like, Cheyenne, I believe, is one of those people. Cheyenne's great, yeah. You're one of those people. And what I mean by blow up is you are Netflix level. Even if you deny Netflix the, the honor of having your special on there, that's what I mean when you blow up. It's like when something that big comes on, it's like, hey, how about we pay you money to give us your hour? You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and I love the fact that I'm kind of like at the inception of some people that are just going to be massive in like two to four years. And boy, we hope so. You, I, I, you can see it. 
Um, and especially, and, and here's another thing that I really like is you guys don't, even though you're liberal and you say you're a Democrat, you don't pander to this woke bullshit. You're no. not a woke comedian. You're not trying to be a woke comedian. You'll throw in jokes maybe that have to do with certain uh, tribes, mm-hmm. but it's not the entire you know genesis of your work. It's not why you exist as a comedian. No, I've always had a weird thing where it's like, I'll talk about being Hispanic. I'm half Mexican, half white, but it's like, and I, and I see other people get a lot of, um, they find their audience and I worry about it sometimes. Cause like, I don't, I'm not political. I don't really lean in very hard into my ethnicity. I noticed that. Um, it's just about kind of where I come from and where I grew up. And so I, I, I was joking the other day with somebody, I was like, man, I'm just up there talking about, you know, being a drug addict and golden girls and arguing with the audience. I don't know. I, sometimes I worry. I'm like, I don't know what the market is for this. I know that the people in the room are really enjoying it, oh, dude, you but I don't know how me. to, I don't know how to broadcast it out to the rest of the world and go like, Hey, you should be in this room too. They're like, why? And I'm like, ah, it's hard to explain. <laughs> A lot of that nowadays, I think, happens from what you said, like clips and reels and like these short, you know, bites of, look at me, I'm funny. And then you're like, oh, dude, he is funny. Like a lot of people, comedians, like Andrew Schultz, I had no idea about him until I saw clips and then I saw his podcast and then I saw his special and I was like, this guy's really funny. And it's been cool for me too. And it gives you hope because whenever you're in this business, like I've been, I've been working hyenas and all these clubs for eight years. So I remember Andrew Schultz being at hyenas and we're giving out free tickets. Right. I remember uh, Mark Norman is someone I have a really, really good relationship with. I love Mark Norman. I love Sam Merrill. I remember really and Sam, and I remember five years ago, they were all at Hyenas. Right. And we're giving out free tickets. Yeah. We're giving out free tickets, just hoping people show up. And then like two months ago, uh, I texted Mark and I went out to um, San Antonio to open up for him at LOL. And they're not giving out free tickets. And that room sits like 400 people. Every six shows sold out months in advance. So there is uh, a progression as a comedian that can occur if, like I said, if you're willing not to give up and you're genuinely good. Like some comedians just suck. They, somebody needs to sit them down after five or ten years and be like, look, sorry. I'm such a critic, but I always, you know, the story I always think of is uh, someone said uh, Jim Gaffigan. Uh, one of my favorite comedians ever was this guy, Greg Giraldo. Okay. Who's not around anymore. He passed away, right? Yeah. Uh, Four or five years ago, I want to say. Or yeah. was it longer than that? Longer than that, I think. Damn. I'm and, mixing uh, up my dates. But him and him and Jim Gaffigan were really good friends. And he's, he would tell the story after Jim Gaffigan had blew, blew up. And he goes, uh, Jim Gaffigan was the worst comedian in New York City for 10 years. And uh, so sometimes whenever I see people who I like, I like, but like I, 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 see, I can see them not getting it yet. It's not working on stage yet. And in my mind, the last key, the last little excuse I give them is I think of Jim Gaffigan. I'm like... Maybe they're going to figure it out, you know, and things are going to turn around for them. Well, I mean, um, Rogan talks about this when he's talking about Joey Diaz. We talked about earlier. Joey used to bomb nonstop on stage. And this is like back in the day at the comedy store, you know, and I don't remember how or what happened, but it just clicked one day and Joey finds his voice. And now Joey Diaz is Joey fucking Diaz. I mean, everybody knows his name, you know, like not just for movies like The Longest Yard or whatever, but knows him as one of the funniest people ever. And, and I do get, I do get, um, I can get cynical sometimes because I see some guys like that and I see the guys that are like around those big podcasts that blow up. And then because the podcast blew up, then they get to go on the road as a headliner and all these people are coming out to see them. Right. And then 
little old me's in the back of the room as the feature act going up in the middle. And I'm at a place now where I go up there and just destroy this room. Because whenever I'm in those kind of situations, when you're working with somebody famous, you're not going up there going, hey, do you guys mind if I do something dark and like working it out? Right. You're just, you're giving them the business. Yeah, it's a Friday night or Saturday yeah, night. Yeah, you're going up there and you're doing the shit you know You're the works. killer. Yeah. And then you see this guy who's got this huge podcast and all these numbers and everybody paid to see him. You go up there and you just go, man, that wasn't very good. Because he's not having to fight for his audience. He's not as refined as you are. Well, he doesn't have to be because they're, right. just, they're just happy he's there. But, but you know, you, when, you're, when you're running with the weights on and you're training in the dark for so long, hopefully whenever you get to the light, you know. You're ready. You're ready. You're ready. You're like, you're Stallone and Rocky, man. You're ready to go. You've been, because you've, you've been training nonstop for that chance. Pretty yeah. Much. And I think, I don't know how that happens. Uh, it has to be a bit of luck because we all know people that like, you know, they should have done more or been more and it just never happened for them. Mm -hmm. like, I, I, I don't want to name any names, but I can think of comedians that I remember from like the early 2000s and they were just killers so good and then for some reason they never got that late night tv show or they never got the sitcom and they got to an age where social media and podcasting just kind of went over their head mm -hmm. and i feel bad for those because they were just at the wrong time at the wrong place wrong time kind of a situation so i think luck does play a factor i mean being alive now as a comedian is very interesting because you have all these different outlets because if you do blow up as a stage comic, then your podcast will blow up. And then there's just like a never ending money train that can follow with that, depending on how many views you get and other things that just kind of happen. Natural progression. Then you start selling at arenas and all this stuff, which I feel like 10 years ago didn't exist. It was still get on a sitcom or have uh, Jimmy Fallon invite you on to actually get there. But it's also the opposite of it. It's like, I, I, I've never like, I've never consider myself a super ambitious person like you know i always like i always like the bands where the, the the ticket was 15 bucks at the door yeah but like you know comedians I mean? are inherently lazy people but, they but, admit but, it. but before the internet was huge though and you could do all these things in this podcast you know what you could do you could just be a killer you could yeah. just be a killer and then you could just be on the road making like 10 grand every couple weeks just being a headliner at clubs and all you had to do was be funny so headliners make more money Oh yeah, headliners make a ton more money, and but then, and also these guys that are selling all these tickets. But now, now to be a comedian, you got to be a videographer, you got to be an editor, you got to be a promoter, you got to be running your own social media. I mean, these are things that businesses pay people individually to do all of these jobs. Sure. And then also, by the way, at the end of all that, you got to find some time to write some jokes. Yeah. And work them out. Like for this, I have yeah. a guy to produce the audio portion of it for me. So he'll actually go in and fine tune it and make it sound podcast quality. Yeah. Even though you put money into gear and stuff, you still need someone to do the post-production work. I get it. But when you're struggling and you don't have any revenue source, then you have to do it yourself and you have to teach yourself. You have to do all of these things. And, you know, you're no longer just a comedian. You're an entrepreneur now because yeah. so much of it is tied to a, what my brand can bring to me, right? Like... You're not just Lawrence, you're Lawrence and you're also a brand. There's there's a potential for brand deals that are going to happen and people are going to pay because so many eyeballs go to your Instagram every day or listen to you on Spotify, whatever it is, right? There's this path projection that you can have, which is really cool. And I think that hopefully, you know, as we get here towards the end, I think the journey for me now is like, I, I am proud of some things where it's like, um, I was, I was, I was, 
I'm glad that I got work whenever I was new or starting out um, because it, it slowed me down in a lot of ways because okay. because because I was getting because I was getting booked at the clubs to work weekends even mm-hmm. as a host MC whatever and then I became a feature things things were progressing um, so I didn't have this need to like be like oh I've got to post everything on social media and I've got to promote myself in all these crazy ways because I was getting the work. So whenever you're three or four years in, you don't really need anybody to know what you're doing. Right. If that makes sense. I always say there's no reason for someone to see you not do well. So I, I, I didn't have this eagerness to self-promote. I was just getting work at these clubs and nobody knew who I was, but it didn't matter. I'm the, I'm the opener or I'm the feature act. They're not here to see me. I got it. Okay. So you're just boxing, you're just boxing, you're working out, you're working out, working out. And then, and I probably, I, I mean... I know for sure I probably waited too long, but now I'm at a place where now I'm posting all these clips and if something does happen, if something does blow up tomorrow and then I have an audience, man, when they come to the show, I'm ready to go. Yeah. So if it, if it would have happened four years ago, they would have came to the show and I wouldn't have been ready for them. So it, it's pretty much like the guy that's a podcast famous trying to become a comedian. You're going to... Sp- not do well on stage but if you're doing the reverse effect of that which is exactly what you did people are going to come back come to your show and they're going to leave way more satisfied and happy than the guy that hasn't had the stage time and hasn't been on the road like you have yeah that makes a lot of sense that's that's an amazing strategy and i think well it wasn't a strategy it's just how it's gone but like now now it should be a strategy for a comedian that's trying to make it to like okay do the posting and all that stuff but your stage is like where you it's need what to matters be the, the most. most. Yeah. yeah. You need to be there the most. But it's hard to tell somebody, shut up for eight years. You don't need to be doing all this. Shut up. Just get better. And you think, uh, do you think there's a formula of time that should actually exist before you try to expose yourself on social media? Let's say this is day one, first time on stage. I mean, there's different, there's different types of people. Like I've seen some people that are so you know, forward facing on these things. And that's, that's what like, they're really good at it. They love promoting themselves. They're posting clips of themselves at open mics. Okay. You know what I mean? And, and to me, I, there's no shame in that. I think they're going to learn their lesson. I think they're going to realize, and then hopefully they get far enough into comedy that they do what I've done at times, which is go back and delete those videos. Cause they're like, Oh, Oh, actually now that I've made it way further and I'm way better. I don't even, I would be upset if anybody even watched that. Got it. You know, so you're promoting yourself in all these ways, but if you're still around in three years and if you're doing all that and you're doing all this self-promotion in my, in my, whatever opinion, if you're six months in and a year in and you're doing all this promotion, I don't think you're going to be there year three because you're burning yourself out on the things that don't matter yet. Okay. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I get exactly what you're saying. It's like, it's, um, what's the analogy when they say you got to learn to crawl before you can walk before you can run. Mm -hmm. So like the, that, three-year mark is kind of what you're talking about is that progression of like crawl walk run and i would say i mean from in my opinion but i mean some people blow up quick um but in my mind i would if i was starting out you know i would tell myself to shut up for three years and just focus and i think that blowing up quick is a double-edged sword sometimes it could be a great thing but other times it can destroy a person because they just didn't put the work in and they were not ready for what was going to happen and if i would have blown up four years ago you know my drug habit at the time was such that what was your drug of choice uh it, i mean it was uh it, you know it was, it was it was like just weed and then you know then i got into cocaine okay and then i zigged when i should have zagged and i i got into meth Oof. and uh it completely destroyed my life i woke up in seattle about three years ago 
um, I was homeless for a little bit. Okay. And then my oldest friends flew me out to Seattle to get clean. And, um, and you know, then there were some relapses and now I'm two and a half years, um, clean of all drugs. Was it your friends that ultimately made you get clean or was there something inside of you that wanted to get clean? I mean, I wanted to get clean the way I was going. I wasn't, it wasn't sustainable. Like okay. my drug habit, I think when it got to math, it wasn't something that, um, you can, um, I knew in my head, like, oh, I can't just kind of keep doing this. I can't dabble. The end is almost always bad. Yeah. I think, I think it's just also just admitting you're a drug addict was hard. Like I always knew I was an addict and that like, I, I like, I was prone to these things. Okay. But until like, you know, you've really, when things get so bad, you got to look around and go, oh shit, like this is not, if I don't fix this right now, I'm going to die for right. sure. Um, and then, you know, and also, you know, just being homeless at, at, at that old of an age um, and not having anywhere to go. So how did that happen? What was like uh, the I, meth and just kind of like that spiral? Yeah. And then I was just spending all my money on it, doing it all the time. You know, like my wife would go to work. I would pretend I was going to work and I'm just in uh, the office just smoking meth for like six hours. And is that how you're? relationship kind of came yeah to i mean end. yeah it just it caused all kinds of chaos um and then so you know then i had to move out and i didn't have anywhere to go and then i like i'm a very uh independent person so i didn't want to ask for help right and then my oldest friends the like people that i grew up playing in bands with like found out that i was in the situation and they basically hit me up and they go like um hey we, we're we pulled money we're gonna fly you somewhere tomorrow you, you got a friend in El Paso. You got a friend in New York. You got a friend in Seattle who you want to go live with because we're getting you the fuck out of here. And where were you at that time? I was just living like in a parking lot in Dallas. In Dallas, okay. Yeah. Um, so they they uh, they flew me up to Seattle. And uh, I was there for two months. And it was so weird, like not just getting clean, but not doing comedy for two months. I and was, the, were you in an actual treatment? No. Or was it just staying at a friend's house and just staying away from bad habits? Staying away. Like, and I, and I, I even relapsed in Seattle. Shit. And I, I didn't even know anybody there. And I found it. Um, Which is kind of like the drugs found you, huh? Yeah. And, but I was also very, I was able to slow down a lot on it. And it was very helpful for me that the fact that in Seattle, weed is legal. Right. I think that was very helpful for me. The fact that I could just, you know, when you're going through withdrawals that bad, to be able to go down the street and buy a couple joints. Do you mind talking about the withdrawals? How, what was that experience like? Cause it, I, I can only imagine being in a residential treatment facility for something like that. Yeah. Much less just, you know, doing it on your own. It was, it was, uh, just pain in your whole body and the way your mind, um, like I still refer to it as the accident where it's like, even coming back into comedy, my writing, like everything changed okay. and, and I had to adapt to how my brain works now. Um, cause it's not going back to what it was before I was so much crisper and, and I think I'm so much better as a comic now. And, but I, I always refer to it, uh, for, for a year there, just dunking with a deflated basketball. Like I was basically like, cause whenever you're getting clean of drugs, your brain is using up, you know, it's you're, not only are you writing and you're eating breakfast or you're doing this, you're also doing that and not doing drugs. Right. That's what your brain, your, your brain, like it's holding up half of it. 50% of your mental strength is going, don't do drugs, you know? So it was, you know, something goes bad or things don't go right for you. And your brain's going even harder. Like, Hey, we're not going to do drugs just because it was a bad day, you know? And uh, so now I'm at a place where, you know, two and a half years clean of drugs, 
now I have my son holding my hand, calling me dad. And it feels good to finally be like, my brain doesn't appear. I'm never going, Hey, let's maybe do some drugs today. Okay. And was, what was, so getting clean from, I guess the hard stuff, I understand that. Was there a reason that weed and alcohol too, I'm guessing, or do you still I know I still drink. Okay. I still drink. Um, Um, Weed, weed, I, I, I am an advocate for weed. I think weed would be healthy for someone like me in my situation. Okay. Um, with a lot of the trauma and the fact that like, I just like, I like the idea of at the end of the night, if I was able to control myself, just have a joint, play my guitar, write my little stupid jokes. Um, I think it'd be very healthy for me. Um, but, um, my, my mentality about it is, uh, I have to take drug tests to see my son. Okay. Right. But they don't go to the court. Like they just go to his mother. That's fine. I mean, the, the, yeah, just so, and she's even said one time, like, Hey, I don't care. We smoke weed, you know, but I think for me, I get these, I get these when I'm at my best and I'm healthy, I get these ideologies in my head or these ideals. And it's like, this woman has put up with enough of me doing drugs. I'm not going to have weed show up on there. And I just don't want her to have to worry. And that's she, such... she, She's worried enough. So I don't want her to have to worry, but I think weed would be healthy for me. That's such a beautiful thing. You, you said like yeah. I, I I love the fact that there are forces in your life stronger than drugs, uh, not forcing you but guiding you away from it. You yeah. know, like your son and your ex wife. Like these are strong forces that you're like I don't want to lose the grip I have on this. Yeah, I'm not gonna let it. Because I don't think I don't think if I smoke weed, I'm not gonna turn around and go do some math. Like I know that. Yeah, we have, the dare program was complete bullshit, bro. Nobody, <laughs> uh, you know, there. It's not a gateway drug to meth and heroin and all this stuff. If you're gonna do meth and heroin, you're gonna do meth and heroin. Yeah, that's it. Like, I know people that started on meth and heroin, never did weed, never were big drinkers. Just to me, like, mental health is everything. Like, um, you know, the, I ended up in a situation where I would smoke meth for the first time anyways, because my mental health, you don't do that if you're mentally healthy. You just don't. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. Like if you've got structure and a solid foundation, the pathway to meth is really hard. And that's what it's been hard, like in talking about it on stage, like I found whenever I got home. I remember you talked about your friends flying you to Seattle. That was part of the bit, uh, one of the bits that you did that night. Uh, oh, okay. That talked about it. I was just trying to remember which drug it was because I don't know for some reason I thought it was heroin. No, 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 no. no. I never touched heroin. Thank God, because I'd be dead. Okay. Um, I watched my mom kick heroin when I was a kid, and it's it's terrifying. Um, but I uh, I found when I got home, it's it's not that it's funny, but it's it's a weird dichotomy where it's like. And I even say it on stage sometimes. I'm like, if I said I was addicted to cocaine, everybody would be like, oh, we've all been there. Meet me in the bathroom. You know what I mean? But right. like, if you say meth, everybody's like, there's like a hush that falls over the room. Um, yeah, you're and, right. And, and, but I found my way to talk about it is the, that's the reason my addiction got so bad also is the fact that I had to hide it. Like I'm around mostly normal people now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. I didn't want anybody to know that I was smoking meth. I couldn't come clean. Like, so it took me so long to finally get help or tell my friends because I was so ashamed of what I was doing. If it was cocaine and if I was on cocaine and that would have spiraled out, I think I would have felt a lot less shame about what was going on. Right. But because it was meth, it took longer for everything to and happen. I, and I think it's be- maybe, I'm, I'm not going to reference it to crack, but cocaine itself has probably destroyed less families than meth has. Yeah. I think the grip that meth gets on a person and just because I'm, I don't know, like there's so many 
documentaries and these crime, you know, based on real life stuff that you see, you're like, damn, dude, this, this destroys so many people's lives. Well, my problem too is whenever you're doing meth, it's like you're not sleeping. Right. So like on day three of no sleep, you're in psychosis. Uh, I was, I was, I got to a place where I was like, not, I was having thoughts that I'd be very ashamed to even repeat now. You know I mean? Like there was just, there was a lot of, um, paranoia going on and I would have these crazy highs about myself and then these crushing lows on the come down about how it felt about myself. You know, it's just doing that. It's basically just taking a gun and putting it in your mouth and putting it down every day. Like I'm th those are the highs and the lows. It's kind of making you like severely bipolar. Very like, much all, so. It sounds like severe, like, you know, suicidal ideations at one point and then on top of the world, the other, mm -hmm. that's, it's not sustainable though. I mean, yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying. It's not a drug that you can just keep. I mean, I, I guess I remember some people from that world that I, it seemed like they've been doing it a long time. Um, but, the way I was doing it, it was not, uh, it was not going to end well. It didn't end well, <laughs> but it wasn't going to, I couldn't keep going that way. I, I think it ended way better than you think, man. I mean, you're seriously, seriously lucky. Yeah. And I know you don't like to consider yourself lucky, but throughout this podcast, it's kind of been like a theme. It was like, yeah. you talk about a lot of things that happened in your life that you yourself probably could think of a half a dozen people that never made it out on the other side. Yeah. I've, I've always had a way of landing on my feet, but I'm also aware that now I'm getting at the age where like I land on my feet, but I roll my ankle. Like it's time to, we got to quit doing this. Shit hurts, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's time to, it's time to quit just barrel rolling out of life situations. Like I, I'd like to be on a little bit more of some, uh, uh, some firm ground here. And I think I am mentally and, um, um, you know, drug wise. And I was curious, did, uh, you yourself going through your own drug journey, uh, help you have a better relationship with your mom or was that already kind of in the works prior? Um, it's, it's had me, I've, I've gained a lot more understanding and I've always had empathy and sympathy for my mother because, um, I was aware that I was an addict too. Mm -hmm. And like, I didn't really, um, I wasn't that hard on her about all of those things. But as I've gone through my own trials and tribulations, it's like now I look back and I even said it out loud on stage. Other night. I, I, I catch myself a lot now that I'm a lot looser on stage that I will catch myself saying things that clearly, you know, I, I think and I just hadn't really verbalized it. But I, I said the other night, I was like, yeah, I, I became my mother. Um, Interesting. You know, a little different with a kid. <clears throat> so it's hard for me to say that. But yeah, I ended up making a lot of the same mistakes. You know, huh? Damn, dude, that's, that's, that's like a profound statement. I yeah. Never thought about it. But it's that. also scary to just know that, you know, you've got the devil in your bloodstream. You know what I mean? It's, it's there. It's lurking. Yeah. But you also have to look, we are a product of environment. Mm -hmm. So the environment your son grows up in will dictate and determine a lot of, does he do drugs? Does he not do drugs? Like there's a really high likelihood he just doesn't. My therapist at the time gave me, right before he was born, gave me the best line, um, which is because I was expressing all of these concerns to her about what I was really fearful of for my child and why I never wanted to have kids to begin with. Right. And, I, you know, she told me, she goes, Lauren, she goes, your kid's going to be you, but without all the trauma. And that seems so obvious, um, but I really, it needed, I had to have someone say it to me for me to really wrap my head around it. Yeah. And, and I still get nervous. I was making a joke on stage the other day, like we're, we're eating lunch together and he's just kind of staring off into space. And I looked at Brittany, his mother, and I was like, you think he's depressed? And she goes, no, he's 18 months old. I'm like, okay, I just worry. I just worry. <laughs> you know, like I don't want him to have this brain. And that's such a good um, way of looking at things is like, 
being happy your son is your son, but also being uh, hyper aware of what you have gone through, uh, you know, drugs and addiction. Yeah, there is a, a genetic component to it. We all understand. But I really think that if you keep that attitude, if your kid's going to be more than just fine, he's going to be amazing. Yeah. I don't and think and I also have, have some awareness of like now when I look at him, the way he acts about certain things can be a little rebellious and stuff. I think like uh, I think oh, he's really going to need me. He's going to need someone that knows what is possible inside of him. I agree. You uh, know? Yeah, because I'm he's a reflection of you in certain ways, isn't he? Yeah. You already see yourself. Well, you him. know that like the darkness is lurking. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, like how is he going to handle it? You know, because I worry it's in there. But you also have to remember that a lot of his personality is also coming from mom. Yeah, and his mother is amazing, and she does not have those. Uh, same addict addictions that I do. It's perfect. Um, yeah, she's super sweet and amazing. Yeah. Then you have the opportunity to have what is known as a warrior in a jungle, yeah, in yeah. the garden. You know, like yeah, yeah. it's good to be a warrior in a garden. Have the tools, but don't use them. Yeah. So yeah. you know, you've got, you've got the good components there, and I think you yourself have this attitude of I don't want my son to go down that path. Let oh, me for sure. be hyper aware of it even at 18 months, which is kind of too soon, but you know, your ex-wife is correct. If I do everything right, he'll never be a comedian. I can tell you that much for sure. True. Yeah. There's a lot of truth to that statement. I think yeah. you're, you're very right about that, you know, yeah. cause he may not be in, be in the arts at all. Yeah. If like I love, exists. I love comics and like, there's nothing more like I wrote the other than my son and everything, but like, I enjoy a lot sitting around a table with the uh, five professional comedians and we're all having a drinks. But you talk about not a group of stable people. They're a good time, but they're not uh, stable people. Yeah, because uh, I think a lot of them are still trying to figure out, uh, you know, the adult part of life. Yeah. Because they're always constantly on the road and they're always trying to work and try to hone their skill and their art that a lot of the stuff that like maturity may be delayed in some people. And yeah. I think people in the arts may have that happen to them. There's a lot of arrested development. Yes. Going on for sure. <laughs> for sure. But it makes, it makes for good stories, but I you bet. don't want, you don't want them, you know, balancing your checkbook or. No, that's why accountants exist for a reason. You don't yeah. want your accountant to be funny. The same way. I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You definitely don't want your accountant. You don't to want funny. to be your surgeon, the same thing, right? You don't want him like, okay, cool. Have a sense of humor, but don't be trying to give me your one liner five minutes before you put me under. No, thanks. Yeah. I'm really good. You know, like, yeah. why are you thinking about that versus the surgery you're about to do? So I, but I'm, I'm excited, man. And it's, uh, also like for comedy, my story, the story that I've been working on for eight years, you know, with this, that's now become this hour long set, which is about, you know, who I was as a kid, what influenced me as a child, what I went through, and then me basically going through my addiction. And then now I kind of have the last chapter, you know, which is my son. Yeah. And it's cool that you say it's the last chapter because there's a continuation to the book. Yeah. Um, and I think after this hour blows up and you kind of put it to rest and start working on the next hour, it's also going to be just probably as exciting because you're going to have all these funny, quirky things that probably happen with your son and things in life. Like you'll, I'm sure you're going to continue to be one of those comedians that innovates and comes up with more, you know, hours, hours that he can just keep doing on the road. And cause I know you're going to get to a point where you're going to be like, dude, I've been doing this so many times probably time to put it to rest That's oh yeah probably well even jokes, right now right? my hour is changing and changing and changing like i was doing those hour-long sets at tk's over the weekend great club and um it's never the same 
because I've have so much stuff that I haven't recorded and I've never tried to put it out into the world that I have all this stuff that you could come see me do an hour and you're going to hear a couple of the same jokes, but a lot of it's going to be different. That's cool. Every night, every time. And I think you should probably record all that stuff so you can kind of like start putting together blocks of hours. That's why that's where I'm at right now. It's like, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well like, okay. So if I have an hour 40, what's the hour? Right. And it's hard because there's all these little like, okay, so it's a one long story, but it's like, okay, so here's the stuff about my grandmother, here's the stuff about my mom, here's the stuff about marriage, and here's the stuff about uh, drug addiction. So I have, I have all these jokes that go in each one of those buckets, but some of them have to come out. Exactly. So it's like, what, what, which are the best ones on these topics? And then the other ones have to go. So I keep changing it every night and I keep moving it around and I keep letting it be what I feel in that moment. So I've got to make some choices. And do the extra ones get banked for use later or do they just get removed? Yeah, they get banked and then they kind of, they, 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 uh, they turn into something else. A lot of times, like I'll have a bit that like, it used to be about this. And then the further I pull the string on it, it becomes about something else. Like there's so many times I I don't, I don't do set list anymore, which is like a big thing. Comics will sit down and write down like one word for each bit that they're going to do on a piece of paper. So it's kind of to make their own, uh, I don't know, like bullet points of what they want to talk about yeah it's like a roadmap okay cool yeah so a lot of times like you'll write a bit and then you'll name it something and like i have some bits that i always joke about like i have a bit it's like i know i know how the bit goes it's one of my better bits but on the on the piece of paper when i see it i write it down as mixtape and i don't remember why it was called mixtape because that word's not in there there's nothing about a mixtape in the story okay but whatever the original genesis for it was that's why I named it that for some reason. And I can't even remember why anymore. So these things always evolve. They always change. Huh. Um, yeah. That's, that's, that's so funny that you have a name that you can't figure out where it comes from. I can't from, even but remember it, where it came from. Yeah. But it, it, the, the funny part is like that your brain still makes that connection every time for you when you jot it down. You're like, oh, I know what this is. Yeah. Going. Since I do mixtape, I, I do it. And, but nobody else would have any idea why this is called this. Yeah. And I can't even remember. <laughs> that's the best part. Yeah, yeah. Just, that's that's hilarious to me. Yeah, like, I also didn't uh, know how old I was, so I'm a pretty forgetful person, you know. Yeah, that one's interesting too. And a question, like more of a personal one, is: Have you ever had any of the people that you talked about come to your shows, like Nikki or your mom or uh, half sister? I don't know, friends, like you know, the three or four buddies that got you clean. I mean, uh, yes, on all of them, and um, not no, not Nikki, not Nikki, never has. Um, my mom has, and it was, you know, she was very supportive of me in the beginning and she still is. But like when she's there, I pull back on some of those things. I remember there was one time we were having a drink, um, where she lives and out in the country. And, uh, she's always been like, I don't mind you tell those stories. Cause like the fact is they're true. Right. You know, and about her addiction. And yeah. Prison and a lot stuff. of it, I'm not even getting into like, you know, I'm telling them as jokes, not as, you know, the cold hard facts, which would not, which would also be not enjoyable. At least I'm telling them as jokes. Right. But she's always seemed to be okay with that. And then one time we were having that drink and she goes, is there anything about me you do like? And I was like, oh shit. I didn't Damn. realize like how much I had hurt her with some of those things, you know, but she loves stand up comedy. I mean, that's kind of where I got it from. You know, and I kind of became this version of myself because of how I grew up with her. So it's like, I, I feel that same way now too, whenever I'm having to deal with the consequences and the ramifications and the, the debris that I caused, you know, for those two and a half years. Um, now, whenever 
you know, you have to, it's hard to look at it right in the face right? and go, yeah, that's what I did. Those are the facts. And I think in that statement alone, um, maybe she'll listen to this one day, but I think that you just literally said how much you do love her and all yeah. the good that does exist from her. I, I think people sometimes forget that uh, even the negative, negative things that our parents may have done or not done towards us really shape the person that we become and we should be grateful for that even if it was a negative thing we should still be grateful that on the other side of that i am who i am because of you and that's exactly what i told her we were having lunch together a couple days ago uh she took me out for my birthday which is very kind of her and um we were having those conversations because we were sometimes you know when you experience a lot of trauma and, I, and i've had the same kind of thing the last two years where like sometimes i i mentioned things to her just because like i was seven i'm like did that happen the way I remember that happening? And, right. you know, to have her go, yeah, yeah, that did happen, you know? And we had a few of those conversations. And it was also a good reminder that, A, I'm not bringing it all on stage. Okay. Do you know what I mean? I'm not up there just... I, the stuff I typically say on stage, there's a reason why I say it. It's And it's because it's how it affected me. Mm -hmm. But some of the other dark stuff, like I'm not doing anything about that because that's just about... It's not about me. Right. You I, know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's something I lived through, but it's not, it's not helping the story. It's not influencing anything. But I even told her, I go, you know, cause she, every once in a while, very rarely, she'll be like, you know, I'm really sorry about that. And I'm like, you know, it's, I told her whenever I was, when you're a young boy, you don't know, you don't know that things are supposed to be different. It's all, you know. So I told her, I go, you know, I think back on a lot of those times we had when I was a kid living with her before she went to prison. I was like, I was having a great time. It wasn't until I got to Plano <laughs> That I was like, oh my God, like I was living like a wild animal. I had no idea that this was so bizarre. Right. The, what, what we were doing every day and how we were living. You know, you don't know as a young boy, this is the, the world that you live in is just the world you live in. You don't know what else is out there. Yeah. You have no idea. You have no, what, whatever's going on at your house is normal to you. Which is one of the shittier things about becoming an adult and discovering things. And then you're just like. Oh, fuck it didn't have to be that way yeah what the hell yeah oh oh we were crazy we were the crazy ones yeah you know what yeah, i mean yeah, yeah. yeah yeah it's weird to grow up and finally see it that way but i also notice sometimes that people that don't have any of the traumatic experiences or the shitty backgrounds their minds are not as expanded as others i think they they because it, it, it's so easy to not want to kind of like deviate from the plan so you never explore things and you never go down these weird paths of trying to get answers that because you don't if you don't go through the shit you don't have the questions to ask yeah um so it's weird that we find so much beauty in pain and sometimes it takes a severe amount of emotional pain to find some of the most beautiful things in the world yeah it sucks that it works that way, but it does. I think I think overall in comedy, I think the reason I started and the the reason I'm still going um, is the idea that whenever I was a young boy, you know, hearing like uh, Christopher Titus was a very influential album for me. He had a, a he had a, a album called Norman Rockwell is Bleeding, and and I loved stand up comedy when I was a young boy, but it was the only album I ever heard when I was a little kid that like talked about shit that reminded me of me like he has a bit in there where he would go like uh it's a very simple line but he goes my mom's crazy and not like my mom's so crazy but like we the jury find the defendant right 
And I remember like dying laughing at that. And I was like, oh, should I have those stories? I do like, it's not, it's not ripping from that bit at all, but I do a bit where, uh, and I hadn't done it in years. And I said it the other night where I go, uh, you know, a lot of people would say my mom's a criminal, uh, uh-huh. but, but those are just words on a background check. <laughs> I go people that know her story, the people that know the whole story, you know what I mean? Like those, that's called a jury yeah, uh, no, and they I, called but, her guilty, but she's my mother. I call her Trina. And uh, so it's like, it's my own little version of, it's not like, I don't think anybody would call that stealing. You know, it's a completely different version, but it's just the same thing. They're nowhere near each other. Plus you're talking about something that was like a 20 years ago, maybe longer. Yeah. So, I mean. But as comics, like you're never allowed to take from other people, but like it is my little homage, I think, to the first time I heard somebody tell a joke that reminded me of my life. So to me, the idea in my head has always been, since I was so, as a young boy, I feel like I was so saved by the fact that I enjoyed all these artistic things so much that like if I could finally put out this album and some kid who's growing up real crazy could hear it and laugh about it and realize like, oh, it's not just me. Right, exactly. To I, me, that's kind of always been the goal. And I think that's kind of why I be- became so enamored and in love with comedy and stand-up comedians is because they were sharing a lot of the stuff that I was feeling and they were all, you know, a lot of them were talking about the shitty houses that they grew up in. Even though the situation was not the same, the, the underlying cause of all that shit was, it's like you were a kid, stupid shit happened that probably shouldn't have happened and you had no control because adults were not being adults. Mm-hmm. And then now you have to kind of like pick up the pieces. And that's why I love stand-up comedy so much is because it helped me get through a bunch of tough times when I was younger. Like I can think of a, dozen comedians that when i was probably between the ages of 10 and 16 kind of really helped me figure shit out and And i I I love the fact that you guys exist and that's why i think i mean that's always been my goal like whenever people talk about doing edgy comedy and i I, whenever i was newer i would you know when you're new you you write stuff that's edgy because you just want to be heard um but like now when i think like i'm not one of those guys like i'm not up there trying to like be super political or push the boundaries of you know of what's bullshit and what's not bullshit but i am very much i think i make audiences i push audiences on the idea of like hey don't don't look away don't shy away don't don't feel bad for me either but let me tell you what my life was right and then make them laugh at it because i know that even the ones that are uncomfortable i know hopefully there's a couple in the audience that like 100 percent get it and I have them come up to me after the shows. Uh, I even had a kid whenever I was like five years in bring his mom to the show the next night. Like he came and saw me and the next night he brought his mom and they came and introduced themselves. And they're like, we have a lot of those similar stories. And uh, like that meant the world to me. Which is, I mean, it could give closure to people. Yeah. You know, sitting in, an, not just closure, but sitting in an audience and saying or hearing what you're saying and thinking in your mind, I'm not alone. Yeah, exactly. Someone else has dealt with what I've dealt with. And especially if it's a kid like in their early 20s or something like that, and they're looking at you like, okay, he's in his 30s. He dealt with all the bullshit I dealt with. And look, he came out on the other side still doing great. I mean, this man's alive. He's clean. But all the things that you talk about. And it's such a beautiful thing to feel connected, to feel like you're not the only one. Because all of us have felt like, you know, one man on an island, nothing around us. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, shit, there's another guy there. Yeah. He knows and, exactly what it was like. And that's like really important. And I'm very grateful that you guys exist. And I don't know, man, like that's why I think comedy is so, so important is that it f- gives another outlet for kids that are not heard to have a voice. Yeah, I agree 100%. 
And on that note, I think I want to say thank you so much, Lawrence, for doing this podcast with me. You're episode number four. Okay, sweet. It's um, my lucky number. I'm so grateful that you came out and talked about your journey and your story. I feel like there's a ton more that we can get to at another date. Yeah, I'd love to have you back again. Um, so don't give people dates because it doesn't make sense with the way yeah. I'm going to be releasing it. But please give people your Instagram. Uh, it's at Lawrence Rosales uh, on everything. Awesome. Uh, the TikToks and the Instagrams and the Facebooks. And then uh, I also have a podcast that I do um, every week with uh, two of the funniest comics in Dallas. Uh, it's called Oddball History. Awesome. And basically we come in and we talk about our week. A lot of it revolves around comedy for like 20 minutes of just being like, hey, this is what I did this week. This is what shows I was on. This is what happened. Little funny stories. And then we every week we pick a different topic like uh, the Cleveland Balloon Festival of 82 where Cleveland was going to release the most amount of balloons that anyone's ever released at a time. And it killed a horse two dudes on a lake and cause a bunch of traffic accidents. So it's like, we just cover like history moments like that. And like, we actually do like real research, like all separately, like we pick a topic, but we all research it in our own way. So then whenever we show up and we start talking about the topic for the week, it, you know, it ends up going pretty wheels off, but it's always, we just cover like just really weird things that happen. So everybody check out oddball history, oddball history. So on all platforms, on all I'm platforms, guessing. Yeah. All right. So Lawrence Rosales at his social medias, Oddball history. That sounds hilarious, by the way. Like, it's super fun. You guys find so like weird, quirky parts of history to talk about. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. The, the balloon festival. The and balloon festival. Just, like, uh, we shit. covered uh, one of my favorite episodes. We covered a, uh, 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 and it's probably because of my background, but we there was a skier, uh, a, a Finnish skier who got caught in the woods during World War II. And back then they all kept meth on him, but it was like in caplets. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And he accidentally ate enough meth for like a whole platoon. Holy shit. And then he just went on the wildest adventure, um, just skiing through Russian camps that are taking shots at him, and he just can't stop. And it's the story is wild; it goes on for a while, but it's uh, it's that a it's a awesome, it's a hilarious episode. All right, yeah, yeah. yeah. 